Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good afternoon or oh, yeah. evening, depending on where you Hi, James and Maria Isabel. Hi. Shabbat Shalom. How are you? Hey, you know, I'm doing okay. Good. This has been a much better week for me. Praise Yah. Praise Yahuwah for that. Yeah, yeah. It's been um it's been very interesting. It has been, you know, the last couple of weeks have been challenging. And I think I did. I'm not sure if I cracked my ribs or just bruised them, but I mean they're still pretty sore. But um that, Ouch. Yeah. that was crazy. That windstorm we had, you know, it was uh it was uh a little of this and a little of that. And but all of those little things are now gone. Good. Yeah. Good. Praise Yah for that one, though. So you're feeling better. Yeah, I'm feeling better. It's amazing because, you know, Yah really works in the details, right? He works in the details. Yes, and yes. You can tell when the adversary is coming against you because the details come against you. Uh-huh. And that's what I was seeing. I mean, for instance, you know, I had just put my uh, studded snows on my car. And all of a sudden, I've got a flat tire, right? And it's like, what is this? How did I, you know, tires that have 4,000 miles on them get a flat, right? They don't. They don't. And then when I went and looked, uh, when I took it into the shop, they came back and I said, well, you know, did you find a screw in it? Did you find a nail in it? What did you find? Oh, nothing. It was a puncture that was just clean, clean puncture. Ah. And I thought, well, okay, how did that happen? I don't know. But, you know, it's yeah. one of these things. And, you know, it's like, for instance, when I tried to record Radio Free Alaska on Thursday, something had happened to my computer that killed my microphone. And I didn't know that until I tried to record Thursday night. When I tried to record Thursday night, also no microphone. So I had to go back in and readjust settings and so forth. Mm -hmm. and it hadn't happened to me. That's, that's why we couldn't find you Thursday night for a while. We tried to get on with you and it was, nothing was there. Yeah, yeah, it was strange. And yeah. so anyway, I had to kind of go back and square things away. But uh, now the details are starting to iron themselves out, which is to me a very good sign. It means that yeah, is back in the details. Good. And uh, that is an important thing. And it makes, I think it does make a bit of a difference in our lives as to what happens, you know. Look and, at my friend, Brother Pigeon. Hey, good to, good to see you. Yeah. Hi, Len. How are you? Pretty good. You see uh, my sheep here? Yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, two. One over there. Looks, yeah, like, yeah. looks like you recently harvested some wool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. how cute! Make a sweater. Making a sweater. This one. Send me the yarn so I can crochet something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, Raina. Yeah. Shalom, Doctor P. Shalom. Hi, Mark. Good to see you, brother. Shalom. Stephen. Raina. Shalom. Hi, John. Good to see everybody the second time. Shalom to my family. The gang's all here. Shalom. Shalom. Hello, everybody. Isn't it pleasant? Shabbat shalom from Malaysia, too. Amen. Mr. Ho. Mr. Ezra. Yeah. 
what what a difference it makes for us to be able to see each other. Good morning, Jesse. How are you? Or good evening. Good, very good. Thank you, Stephen. Good evening. It is late, dark here. Yeah, how did your <laughs> Jesse. Yeah. presentation yeah, go with uh, with Ricky? How did what go? Sorry. Oh, it was, it was lovely. Half an hour before that yours, is. it was lovely. And so many people, just beautiful to be back after so long. And Shane's passing, so it's lovely. It's lovely to come back to. Glad you're back with us, Jesse. Thank you. Thank okay. you, James. Glad to be back with you. Hi, children. Yeah, yeah the, children are, the children are kind of having a blast over there, aren't they? <laughs> Could we hear the shofar from our brother? Yes, yes. Have you got your shofar available there, brother? Yes. <laughs> Shalom. Shalom. Uh, when shall I sound the shofar? Yes, please. Now? Yes. Okay. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Um, this is the call of the shofar to enlist angelic assistance in all our times, as such a time as this. In all our times of trouble, we need to call on Yah through the use of His instrument that He created through this antelope horn from Yemen. Um, it's an Arabian animal that produced this horn and it sounds wonderful. Hallelujah. And, uh, Hallelujah. He responds to this. We believe by faith as I sound this, he responds, Oh, send us, oh yeah, the Mahanaim angelic host to assist us to win all battles because your word in Psalm 68, verse 28, it says, Summon your powers, oh yeah, show us the strength that you've done before. And verse 17 says, the chariots of Yah and tens of thousands and thousands of thousands arise, O Yah, and speak your word. And all our enemies will scatter. The sound of war is being heard now in Gaza and uh, Ukraine and so many other places. All right, so a shout warriors will utter, and we utter this by faith through this shofar blast. And may you all agree and agree in faith too. Amen. Beautiful, Ezra. Thank you. Thank you for that great word this morning, brother. As we look to the blast of Yah and his voice being heard throughout the earth. And Yah's voice is being heard throughout the earth now. There is no question. And his hand is rising on behalf of his children. And even though we see Satan cast to earth, Satan's hours are few now. And they're becoming fewer and fewer as we speak. And as he rises up in desperation, making his last moves, 
who stand strong because blessed are those who endure unto the end. And endurance is what we are all about. And so our preparation is to learn endurance and to learn the patience of the saints, the patience of the Kodashim. May Yah be with us today in our expression, in our understanding, in our way, and in our joy as we join together in fellowship from around the world, one brother, one sister to another, really in a fellowship of kindness, lifting each other up and celebrating the mercy of Yahweh, which is upon us all. Amen and hallelujah. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, I must admit, I am really enjoying the new format. I can't tell you how good it is to see all of your faces and to know that we're together as a family. And I know all of you are getting to know one another. And we're getting to know each other in our own walk. And some of our walks are uh, lonely. And they can be very lonely when you're uh, alone by yourself and there is no other fellowship. And it helps to have this fellowship where we can uh, see each other and to know that there are other people throughout the earth that hold the same view that you do and who have been awakened into the light of Yahweh in the final days. And these days are, they're really quite something else, quite frankly. I find these days to be really incredible, and they're getting more incredible as we speak. I mean, we know that the, uh, you know, the earth is now reeling. And, you know, we, yesterday, for instance, we had very significant coronal blast and with that coronal blast we have seen that uh hold on one second there we go with that coronal blast we have seen a major earthquake hit in the philippines this morning seven point something which typically accompanies a coronal mass ejection these things are in the hands of Yah. They are not in the hands of man. And it, it is Yah delivering his judgment upon the earth, whether good or bad, whether for healing or for to express his wrath and his ire. But these are the things that are in the hands of Yah and not in the hands of man. And the plans of man are now coming to fruition. And I must express to you this morning, I heard something that was kind of interesting, alarming, if you will. Uh, but tomorrow is a threshold date. And the threshold date is, I believe, is going to bring a time of great trouble to the United States. Uh, tomorrow begins the day when there will be people that are going to rise up with arms uh, to overturn the government of the United States. Now, I'm not saying that this is a certainty. This is just what I heard in prayer this morning, and I could be completely wrong about it. Uh, but uh, this is what I heard, and that uh, the troubles are going to arise. Now, uh, because this is going to happen, we have, we have to look at ourselves and say, okay, the Torah portion today is going to be something that is worthy of discussion in that regard. Because we can see that uh, Yaakov, uh, who is uh, really kind of a troubled individual when you look at it. 
Yaakov is a person who uh, was quite greedy. He wanted his brother's birthright. He wanted his brother's blessing. And I think a lot of that desire came from the desire of his mother, who wanted him to have it. Because it was said that, you know, Yah hated Esau and loved Yaakov. And uh, Rivka loved Esau. But Yitzhak, or Rivka loved Yaakov, but Yitzhak loved Esau. And if you recall, during this birth, they were supposedly twins, but they were fraternal twins at best. They were not identical twins. And it was written in the scripture, two nations are in your womb. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at the two nations in your womb. One is, is that it could be this physical thing called sub-infecundation which is pregnancy by two separate men at the same time, creating what appears to be twins, but they're not twins at all because they're from two separate fathers. This is actually a scientific fact, and it happens among human beings more than you might expect. In fact, you can, you can go on to DuckDuckGo and do a search, and you can find how many examples there are just in images very clearly two children from two different fathers but the same mother born at the same time that's one possibility it's also possible that the two nations reference is just in a an, an aspect of fraternal twins rather than identical twins and this is also something that happens uh in it, it, whereas identical twins are the the um it's a double uh, it's a double fertilization of a single ovum that then splits as compared to two separate ovum being fertilized at the same time and creating two pregnancies that, that are contemporaneous with one another. Now, it's possible that, that the phrase, there were two nations in her womb, refers to that, refers to fraternal twins rather than this sub, uh, sub-infecundation. It's very possible. But either way, we're going to see some interesting things in the Torah portion today concerning Esau and Yaakov. Now, when you listen to uh, you listen to Jewish sources talk about Esau, they do not say Esau. They say Esau. Esau. And we've talked about it before that, in fact, it's really not Esau, but it's rather Esau. Esau is really the correct pronunciation, Esau. And uh, this has to do with, for instance, if you saw the name uh, Ehud, it's not Ehud, it's Ehud, Ehud. Uh, like Ehud Barak, right? He doesn't call himself Ehud, he calls himself Ehud. And it has to do with the fact that the I in is pronounced as A. And so the you see that the the um the asu which is uh which is ein shin vav uh would be the correct pronunciation and we're going to see here 
uh, throughout this portion here today that this relationship between Yaakov and Esau is a problematic relationship. Yaakov realizes after having been gone for 20 years, he's coming back into trouble. Even though Yah has told him, go back, go back to the land. He's coming back into trouble. And as he comes back into trouble, he knows he has to reconcile with his brother because he left because his brother swore an oath he was going to kill him. Now, you know, it's a funny thing when you think about these things, because, of course, the kinds of relationships we have as children are really childhood relationships. They're not adult relationships. They're the relationships between children, even when you're dealing with relationships as a teenager. You think you're all grown up when you're 15, right? But you're a far cry from being all grown up. But nonetheless, the decisions you make when you're 15, well, I swore an oath, I'm going to kill him. And so does this oath hold when you're 35? Does it? And so we see something that takes place in here, which is Esau repents, or he doesn't necessarily repent, but he weeps when he sees his brother. Because it's his brother, right? Now, maybe if you hang out for two weeks, all those old animosities come back and you're ready to kill each other again. You know, that happens too, right? But Yaakov is intent upon trying to secure a contractual obligation from Esau. Here, here's all these sheep. Here's all these goats. Here's all this cattle take them in some kind of a contractual covenant relationship that you won't come and kill me because he has 400 men with him. And if you recall, Avram, Abraham did very well with just 300 men going after all of these kings, these five kings, and he did it with 300 men. How much better, how much more effective is 400 men? So in this, we can kind of see something. We're going to see something here in the Torah portion that is, I think, going to be a great teaching for us today in the event that civil war, revolution, anarchy, whatever it is that's going to break out in the United States breaks out. When this happens, how can we learn from this Torah portion about how to deal with one another in human interaction? And I think this is a very good this is a very good understanding. One of the things we see in here is that Yaakov is going to pray about the circumstances. He's going to pray. There's a great prayer in here. And he's talking to Yah. And Yah is making it clear. I asked you to go here. Now you need to go here. And so he does. And we're going to see also something that I think is really it's so important in this Torah portion, and I mean, I still don't have a handle on it, because when I was looking at the um, at the Hebrew here, and you're going to see our expression in the Sefer and how it differs with what you see in the KJV or in many English scriptures, where they talk about Duke so-and-so and Duke such-and-such. Why are they using the word Duke, Right. And the reason being is because they don't know what is the best English word to handle the situation 
of these heirs of Esau having these very high appointments. And when we look at this, we're going to see, again, we're going to see a couple of very critical things. One thing that we see is that one of the children of Esau is born to a concubine. I mean, as it stands, Esau has all of these women, one's a Hittite, one's a Hivite, one's an Ishmaelite. Who are these women, right? He didn't marry a Hebrew girl at all in the mix. He married these other women from these other major tribes, and they all had a substantial body of sons. But in the midst of all these sons and in the midst of all these wives, he finds his way to a concubine. And his concubine also has a son, and his son is Amalek. Now, Amalek has a particular place in scripture. And Amalek does some things that are really quite anathema to the word of Yah, making war on the house of Yasharel continually, always making war on the house of Yasharel. And so sometimes it would behoove us to get an idea as to who Amalek is. And we're also going to see something else very clearly that's written as flat-footed as you can get in this Torah portion. Esau is Edom, it says. Esau is Edom. Now, again, when we talk about Esau is Edom, it's easy for us to try to conceptualize in English about uh, Esau being Edom. Oh, Edom. Those were those guys that had a capital E on them, Edom. And they were living over there in the land of Edomia. And they were then called Edomites. But you have to remember that the word Edom has the exact same spelling as the word Adam. That is to say, it is spelled Aleph, Dalet, Mem. And Mem, Sophie, final Mem, you might want to call it. But Aleph, Dalet, Mem, that's how it's spelled. And so when we're told that Esau is Edom, it, you know, it's kind of an expression. You can, you can easily understand it as well as Esau is just kind of generally mankind. That is to say that when we talk about Adam, Adam means in many respects, just mankind just mankind. Now, if you don't mind, I want to share this with you for just one second in the whiteboard, because I want to show you, I want to show you how this kind of works out. We, we talked about this last night at the fellowship, and it's something that is worthy of discussion, because when we, when we talk about, we talk about the word Adam, we have this idea of Aleph, Dalet, Memsafit. Now, rightly dividing the word requires us to do a couple of things. One of the things we want to do when we're dividing Hebrew, when we look at it Hebrew, is you want to first analyze the word block and say, okay, is there a known prefix in this word? And so some of your known prefixes are Aleph, that's a known prefix, meaning I will be. Bait is a known prefix, meaning in. 
Kaf is a known prefix meaning like. Lamed is a known prefix meaning to. Mem is a known prefix meaning from. He is a known prefix meaning the. Tav is a known prefix meaning you shall, right? And so these are kind of well-known prefixes. And so you want to look and say, okay, are there any well-known prefixes in this word? Where here we can see, we can see a known prefix. We can see the aleph. This is a known prefix. All right, well, then the next discussion is, okay, well, if that's a known prefix, is this a primary root? And so these are questions that you want to ask when you're looking at a word. And so by looking at this, we can say, oh, yes, well, dom is a primary, a dom is a primary root, dom. This is a primary root. And in Hebrew, what does it mean? Well, it means blood. So then when we see the prefix here of the aleph, this means, the aleph means, I will be. So what do we see in the name Adam? I will be blood. I will be blood. And so this is the same spelling for Edom, this aleph. And it's also the same spelling for the word red, Adom, Adom, okay? Which is part of the reason why Esau was given the name Edom, because he was red. Now, interestingly enough, let's take a look at just uh, one other example of this using the Aleph as a prefix, okay? And that is here. Let's take a look at the word. Okay, so in this case, we're talking about ahav. Ahav. Actually, I don't think that's right. Hold on just a minute. I think this is actually a Ahav. Okay, now with this ahav, you see this idea, okay, well, is this a prefix? Yes. Can there be a second prefix? Yes, particularly if it's a he. This means the. And then is this a primary root here? Yes, it is. Av or ab, meaning what? Father. Now, ahav, of course, is the word Hebrew word for love. And it literally means, I will be the father. I will be the father. So we kind of see these expressions now showing you that in rightly dividing the word, you can make a determination about what's going on here and get, uh, I think, a better and a more clear understanding. Okay, so when we talk about Esau is Edom, 
Is it just that he's red? Is it just that he's part of mankind? Or does he become a particular tribe? And I think the answer is that it, there is kind of this understanding that he is no longer chosen. He's no longer of the seed of Yasharel. He becomes unchosen. He's outside of the scope of the birthright. And even outside of the scope of the birthright, he becomes very powerful. And as he rules in Mount Zaire, you can see the number of tribal divisions that are happening. And like I say, in the KJV, you find the word Duke this and Duke that and Duke the other things. Well, there was no sub-infudation taking place during that time. In other words, you didn't have the names of English land barons, whether it's a baron, an earl, a duke, a count, a prince, a king. None of that existed. And the word used in the Hebrew to designate their status as leaders is aleph, aleph. Now, it'd be easier to understand if we were talking about this in Greek, because then you could clearly see this was the alpha male, right? This was the alpha male of that particular tribe. But in the Hebrew, it's designated as the Aleph. And so we'll get into that. We're going to look at these tribes. Now, one thing when you look at these tribes in the Torah portion, or when you look at these names in the Gospels or in First Chronicles, you have this issue of, gee, I can't deal with all these names and so-and-so begat such-and-such who begat such-and-such who begat such-and-such. And pretty soon, you know, you're knocked out cold. I suppose that Matthew 1 has prevented many people from reading the New Testament because they can't get past the begats, right? This is so boring. I just don't want to read anymore. But the begats are some of the most critical aspects of all of Scripture, in particular Matthew 1. I think Matthew 1 is absolutely the core, absolutely the core of the Gospels. Because by the time you get to Mashiach, it becomes very clear inside the Gospels of with, with whom you were dealing. Like to give you an example. The Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees in John chapter 8 readily admit that they are not of the house of Yasharel. Well, what are you talking about? How do you figure that? Well, if you recall, they come and they say, you know, we know who our father is. You don't know who your father is because Mashiach's telling them, I only do what the father tells me to do. Well, we know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. And he says, your father is the devil. And they go on to say, our father is Abraham. And we have never been in bondage to any man. That is an explicit admission that they are not of the house of Yasharel. Because the house of Yasharel, in their annual Pesach practice, recognizes and remembers that they were in bondage in Egypt and were brought out of that bondage. They recognize it every year. These guys are saying, we've never been in bondage, but our father is Abraham. That is a very explicit admission 
that they were the children of Keturah or they were the children of Hagar because they had never been in bondage to any man. They are not of the house of Yasharel, yet they're calling themselves Pharisees, which is the word perushim, which is a claim that they are the direct descendants of Perez, the son of Judah. And they're lying. They admit that they have no relationship whatsoever to the house of Yasharel. So that becomes a very explicit point. Now, it's the same thing with the Sadokim. The Sadokim were people, the Sadducees, were people who denied the resurrection. In denying the resurrection, they are outside the faith of Scripture. If they're outside the faith of Scripture, who are they? They, too, were usurpers to a religious position. They were, quote-unquote, Edomites, as was Herod an Edomite. Herod was an Edomite. That's very clear, which means what? That Herod was from the house of Esau, or Esau. He was from the house of Esau, and his leadership was also from the house of Esau. So you have some very interesting groups. And this is why Matthew 1 becomes so important, because the true Pharisee, the true son of Perez, is Mashiach. It's listed in the genealogy in Matthew 1. Now, when we get into this genealogy in the Torah portion, looking at the sons of Esau, you have to ask yourself the question, who are these people? Because there should be some indication of where they are. Historically, geographically, there should be some indication of where they are. There should be names that have resided in history, singling out geographic regions that are named after these people. Like, I'll give you an example. When you look at the sons of Ham, you know, we see the sons of Ham are few, right? It's Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And these sons are very clearly mapped out in Africa. In fact, in most Bibles, when you read the word Cush, they translate that as Ethiopia. When you read the name Mitzrayim, it's translated as Egypt. When you read the name Put, it's translated as Libya. And you see this throughout most English scriptures because it's a generally accepted geographic disposition of those tribes. When you look at the tribes of Shem, you have his children, Lud, or Lydia, right? Ludia becomes Lydia, Lud. You have Aram, which is the father of the Aramaic language. You have Ashur, and you have Arpakshad, and Arpakshad would be in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. And then you have Elam, which is generally accepted to be on the western coast of Iran along the Persian Gulf. So these areas are kind of, once again, we see a geographic designation. And the house of Lud would become a migratory house, very interestingly enough. And the house of Lud would populate Troy to begin with under the leadership of Darda. But after the Trojan War would leave, 
and reform New Troy on a place called Blued Hill on a river called the Thames. And so London in its first formation under the leadership of somebody who called himself Brutus was identified as New Troy before it became Lud and then Ludonium and then ultimately London, right? Named after that tribe. So it's these are very interesting things. Brian, did you want to say something here this morning? Yeah, I just wanted to, that spoke when you did that thing about Adam being, uh, I will be blood. And because I, because if I have a, I have a thought or a theory, I don't know what you want to call it, that um, before the fall of Adam, he was his flesh and bones. And after the fall, when the curse came, um, he had, you know, he said he's going to have sweat of the brow, right? And one of the reasons we sweat is to cool our blood down. So I, my theory is that he did not have blood prior to the fall and the blood is what caused the corruption to his body to corrupt and get old. And then you see the same picture of the second Adam with Yahusha when he's stuck in the side with a sword and you see the blood in the, in the, in the, in the water come out of him. I just think that's a very interesting picture. I don't know. I haven't got to put it together yet, but what's your thoughts on that? I think that's absolutely brilliant, Brian, because what you're talking about there is that there is something that, um, that does lead to death and you know it's a known fact that you cannot have death unless unless you have life is it also true that you cannot have life unless there is death and you know somebody asked me one time uh, at a flat earth conference well what's your cosmological view i said well my cosmological view is that the whole universe looks at this place and says look at that place it's covered with green slime and the creatures eat each other you know, and we call and we call that life. You know, and so it's very interesting that you would, that you would mention that that the blood may be that placing um, our consciousness into a carnal being that is wholly dependent upon blood, then also uh, puts us in a condition of decay and corruption and ultimately death. Because because of the blood, and you know, and Leviticus seventeen eleven says that the soul of the flesh is in the blood. That's what it says. The soul of the flesh is in the blood, and so this may be something that is because when you talk about this idea, Brian, I mean, let's just kind of fatten this out a little bit because you know trying to understand the blood atonement of Mashiach, the fact that Mashiach had to, had to die and had to bleed, had to bleed out uh, for mankind's salvation is something that is, I don't think, very well understood. Uh, but, but we can see that, I, I think, I, I kind of made the point last night when we were talking, look, ultimately, for creation to be complete, Yah necessarily made himself manifest in the flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It was necessary to complete all aspects of Yah. That is to say that Yah would exist in consciousness, in energy, mm -hmm. and in matter. And so in this matter, Yah exists. And in that matter, what happens is that bloodletting 
if that bloodletting was something that was required to have happened because of the trapping of man in a bloody being, that man was basically imprisoned in a blood being uh, as a result of the fall of man. Mm. That's very possible. That's very possible. Yeah. I think it's a very good insight. Well, because you see that when you when we breathe in the Ruach, that Ruach comes into our lungs and that lungs put it into our blood. And there you, there's your life. It's in the blood. It says the life is in the blood. The Ruach is in the blood. You see that whole, it's just amazing to me. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. That's yeah. all I need. Thanks. Uh, that's <laughs> very interesting, Brian. And, you know, also when we talk about the breathing, right, that Yah would breathe his name into the nostrils of Adam, you know, the Neshema Chaim. He would breathe his his name into the nostrils. And that breath that is breathed into Adam is the same breath we have. We have the exact same breath that Adam had. You know, when we talk about being the children of Adam, what's the one indication that we know is absolutely certain? We can talk about our DNA and we can talk about our blood and all this other stuff. But the fact that we inhale and exhale the same respiration that Adam had, which is really this whole, you know, when a person quits breathing, they're not alive anymore. You can have 100% of all the components, but when you're not breathing, you're not alive anymore. And that breath is the breath of Yah. And he gives Absolutely. us. Hey, that's exactly right. You can, we can breathe the breath of Yah, or we can breathe the breath of the adversary. And it changes your DNA. I think it actually starts putting a signature on you. He says, my, he says, my sheep will know my voice, right? I think he's imprinting as when, when you, when a child, when a mother um, nurses a child, she imprints the child. The child knows who his mother is. You see this imprinting is called, I had an uncle that did this with a horse. He had a new uh, cult. And every day he would go out, my wife's uncle actually, every day he'd go out and breathe in the colt's nose. And I asked him one day, why are you doing that? He says, I'm imprinting the, the colt because I want it to follow me. So every day he breathed in it. So he knew the scent of that person. So it became, you know, that, and that's so cool. It speaks of Yah that when he, because he, when we breathe the breath of Yah, we are being imprinted by him and we bring a signature on him. It's just it just blows my mind. Anyway, that's all I got. Thanks. <laughs> it's beautiful, Brian. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And thank you for making, for bringing those points up, brother, because I think those are, uh, I think they're very illustrative and they do answer questions that are in our heart uh, concerning how do we understand this mystery, this great mystery of the blood atonement of Mashiach? You know, how do we understand that? How do we understand this great mystery of the fall of Adam and this great mystery that is really given to us right off the bat in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We have this huge mystery that just appears before us uh, that really has not been explained yet. The scientific community, I think, spent the last you know 4,000 years trying to explain Genesis 1, and they still haven't gotten there. Okay, so with that, I, I do want to get into the Torah portion, and I want to find out if we have some people that are willing to begin this reading this morning. Joy Rittman, do you want to you want to take on the beginning of this? Yes, I will. Okay, all right. Hold on. Let me share the screen so we can bring that up. So that we're, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna start at Genesis 32, chapter three, correct? Genesis 32, verse 3, yes. Okay. 
And Yaakov sent messengers before him to Esau his brother unto the land of Seir, the county of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my Adonai Esau. Your servant Yaakov says, Thus I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Adonai that I may find grace in your sight. And the messengers returned to Eliakov, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and also he comes to meet you, and four hundred men with him. Then Yaakov was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels into two bands. And he said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Yaakov said, Elohai of my father Abraham, and Elohai of my father Yitzhak, Yahweh which said unto me, Return unto your country and unto your kindred, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have showed unto your servant. For with my staff I passed over this Yardan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray you, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And you said, I will surely do you good and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. All right, now let's stop there for a and second. Joy, let's stop there for a second. And consider this prayer of Yaakov, okay? Because here okay. that before he comes in, he's he's dealing with several issues here. He's he fears his brother, and he fears his brother that his brother might kill him and kill the mothers of his children. You see this? In fact, not only right. the mothers of his children, but kill his their mothers and his children. Okay, now this is a very interesting right. issue because what you're talking about is that, or what Yaakov is talking about, is that he clearly believes that what Esau has the capability in his heart to kill him and the mothers and the children. This, so this is not just to believe, gee, Esau's a bad guy. He hates my guts. And if he sees me, he's going to kill me. No, Esau is such a bad guy and has so little moral compass that he might kill me and the mothers of my children and my children. You see that? He's seeing yes. here. Now, also, we see some other things here. Number one. He says, okay, O Elohai of my father Abraham. Now, Elohai is the expression of my El. Elohim, you know, is one. And then you have Eloheinu, our Elohim. Eloheikem, your Elohim. Elohai, my Elohim. And Jacob said, O Elohai of Abraham. Elohai of Yitzhak, right? And who was the Elohai of Abraham and the Elohai of Yitzhak? Yahweh. 
Now, I want you guys to be able to take confidence in the fact that in the Sefer, when you read the Sefer and you see these words, Elohai and Elohai and Yahweh, that this is exactly what is found in the Hebrew, in the underlying Hebrew text. You will find these words in these forms in the Hebrew text. Okay. And you need to take okay. confidence in that fact. All right. So here you can see that Yaakov is identifying the Elohai of Yitzhak and Abraham as Yahweh. Okay. Yes. All right. It's important. And he says, Yahweh said, uh, said unto me, okay, returned into your country and to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. Now, Yaakov says, hey, I'm not worthy of anybody dealing well with me. I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of Yah's mercy. I'm not worthy of Yah's truth, right? But he says something curious here. With my staff, I passed over. He says here, with my staff, I passed over the Yardan with my staff. And now I am become two bands. Now, this is prophetic, right? You remember right. the one stick right. of, Split what, in two. of Ezekiel 37, right? There's yes. one stick talked about in Ezekiel 37. But Yaakov is saying, hey, in crossing over the Yardan, I have become two bands. Does this forecast the division that would take place between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? I think so. I think this is a prophetic word. I've crossed over the Yardan as one staff, as one stick, but I have become two bands. Yeah, that sounds like prophecy to me. Doesn't it? It looks like it, right? And so now he's going to see he's right. become two bands. And then we hear his direct prayer to Elohai. Deliver me from Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and my mother with the children. Now, I have to tell you that this prayer should be the prayer of the believers right now. Deliver us, O Yahweh, from Esau, lest he come and smite us and the mothers of our children and our children. Let this be our prayer today. Hallelujah and amen. Okay. And Yah said, I will surely do you good. Your seed shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Okay. All right. Yes. All right. Now we can. You want me to go on? Yeah, let's continue. Verse 13. And he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother, 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their colts, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, pass over before me and put a space between drove and drove 
And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, Whose are you and where you go and whose are these before you? Then you shall say, They be your servant Jacob's. Jacob's. It is a present sent unto Adonai Esau. And behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, your servant Yaakov is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face, perchance he will accept of me. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two women, his two women servants, and his eleven sons, and passed over the ford Yabakuk. Yabuk, is that how you say that? Yabuk. Yeah. Okay. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Okay. And Yakov. Now, what we see here is, look at this. He took his two women. This would be Leah and Raquel, and, and his Bilma. women yeah, servants, Zilpa and Bilha, right? Right. And his right. eleven sons. And where did he pass over the Yardan? At the Ford Yabak. Yeah, okay. Do we know where that place is? No, we don't. But let's just assume that it was well known then. All right. And let's continue. All right. And Yaakov was alone, and there wrestled a man with him until he brought until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Yaakov's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go except you bless me. And he said unto him, what is your name? And he said, Yaakov. And he said, your name shall no more be Yaakov, but Yasharel. For as a prince have you power with Elohim and with man and have prevailed. And Yaakov asked him and said, tell me, I pray you your name. And he said, wherefore is it that you do ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Yaakov called the name of the place Penuel. For I have seen Elohim face to face and my life is pre preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose up upon him and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore, the children of Yasharel eat not of the sinew, which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Yaakov's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Okay, now let's stop here for a second. There's a couple things I want to kind of point out about this. First of all, there's a lot of speculation that goes on with this passage. And it's speculation that is not necessarily justified uh, in the in the passage. For instance, he wrestled a man until the breaking of the day. Okay? Now, even though Yaakov says, I have seen Elohim face to face, that's a, an interesting way of putting it in the Ivrit. But Penuel means our face of El. 
our phase of L, right? The new is, go is going to be a suffix on the pen UL. And we see that when you look at, for instance, we see this name Penuel appearing in other places. For instance, we see it in the book of Hanok, talking about uh, one of the uh, one of the seraphim, because there are six major seraphim that are that are named in Hanok that are righteous seraphim: Gabriel, Mikael, uh, Raphael. Etc. Penuel is one of them, and yes, yes. these six, uh, these six seraphim. And remember that the seraphim also have the capability of, uh, you know, becoming angels of light. And you know, as the scriptures say, uh, you you should be careful about who you entertain because you may be entertaining an angel without knowing it, right? You may be entertaining right. without knowing it. Well. So the question is, did Yaakov uh, wrestle with El himself, with Elohim face to face? I don't think that's the case here. Even though we end, we end up at this place called Penuel, I think there's a reason why it's called Penuel. Now, also, we can see something here, too, because this is the first time we see the name Yasharel. Okay? Yasharel. Yes. This is the very first time we see it. And in this name, Yasharel, if you don't mind, I'm going to take just a second to go through this name and it's Ivrit because in the Ivrit, and I hope you guys can see this, do you have this idea? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not wide enough for you guys to be able to see. Let's see. In the Ivrit, we have this idea of Yod, Sheen, Resh. Okay. Now, Yod Shin Resh is very clearly and very obviously, and Strong's will tell you, is pronounced Yashar. This is where we get the Book of Jasher. And the Book of Jasher is referenced in both the Book of Joshua and in 2 Samuel. And it's spelled Yod Shin Resh. And Yashar means upright upright and so when we get to here and then we add this idea of aleph lamed just as you add the aleph lamed just as you add the aleph lamed to penuel penuel so the l is added to the end of yashar that's why we have a an apostrophe in the spelling yashar l because just as we have an apostrophe in Penuel, we have an apostrophe in Yashar El. And so when, when you add the Aleph Lamed, this becomes Yashar El. Yashar El. Now you have to remember that we're told by the Masorites that this is the spelling of Israel. Now, this is very interesting because, of course, when we see Yashar, you can kind of see, you can not kind of see, you can see directly this dot right here, this dot on the right-hand side of the letter Sheen, 
specifies that the sheen is to, is to be pronounced sha and not sa. Sha and not sa. But all of a sudden, when you get people saying, well, we want it to be pronounced Israel, they move the dot. Who moved the dot? People in the 8th century AD are the ones who moved the dot. And they moved it over to Israel. Okay, now, if it's if the dot retains its sameness, then this doesn't become Israel at all. If the dot is retained, it's the same. Then this becomes the word Ish. Ra. El. Now, what is this? Well, Ish is man. Ra is evil. The evil man in El. Now, this is what you would call a contronym. This is a contronym in the Hebrew. And this is why I do not believe that this is a correct pronunciation, but that the correct pronunciation is Yashar El. And Go ahead. Yashar El is consistent with what we see here, which is that he said... Your name shall be called no more Yaakov, but Yashardel. For as a prince, have you power with Elohim. Now, let me show you one other aspect of this that is kind of important. If we look at this and we say, okay, Yashardel, put the shin back up here. Uh, I have a question now. Go ahead. Um, we, we pronounce it Yasharel. Is that that's correct? Yeah. Um, but there's no hey there. Because when we pronounce when we usually say ya short, it's yod hey, right? So if there's no hey, does that affect the pronunciation of the beginning of the word? Hmm. No. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Is it more of a, a Yeshrael instead of a Yasharel? Well, it depends on, on, uh, on uh, to whom you're paying homage, right? Um, uh -huh. I can tell you that we're told by the Masoretes that this letter here is Yod. But there are many in the camp who now believe that this letter is correctly pronounced yeah not yod okay where do you get a d in this letter or where's the o that allows that would be, i've questioned that myself where, where did he come from yeah and it's made up by a maserites who then put their own pronunciation guide to it now again like i say there's no question there's no 
that uh, everyone agrees that this is Yashar. Now, somebody made the point, and they made a very good point the other day uh, on the video that uh, that I did on Thursday night concerning the word Elohim. And you see all of, of the Masoretes saying, well, it's not Yahudim, it's Yehudim. And it's not Yahuwah, it's Yehovah. Why did they do that? Because they... Still hiding the name. They want that out of there. And it's not that they want it out of there. Yah took it out of their mouth. Yah took it away from them because they worshipped the Queen of Heaven and baked wafers and made drink offerings unto her. And when they did that, Yah took his name away from them. That's what happened. And so they try to tell you this, but the truth is, the name has been taken away from them. And so when we look at this, yeah, you know, you can see this as somebody's going to put a patak under here and say, oh, yeah, that's yeah. But the truth is, is that the yod is yeah. The yod is yeah. And so it's yah shin resh, yah sharel. And because of that, all of a sudden, this now there's something else that is that you can say. You want to take it from that point of view, Randall? Let's look at it from that way too. Let's go back to our premise of if there is a prefix, <clears throat> is there a primitive root after the prefix? So let's go back and look at that, and let's call this is Yoda prefix. Yes, it is. Yoda is a prefix. Then is this a primitive root? Yes, it is. What's the primitive root? Sar or Shar? King. What? King. Prince. Prince. And when you have a Yod at the beginning, this is the possessive, and the prefix means, this prefix means, my my prince my prince you see so what's this say here for as a prince have you power with elohim as a prince have you power with elohim okay so we can see here that when we're talking about the name yasharel and this is the first place it appears not the second place when we get down here later on in verse 32, which is what most people are taught that come into the messianic world. Oh, Israel means that he wrestles with God. And that's what it means. But that's not what it means. It means you are a prince with power in L. That's what it means. That's the first time it appears. That's what it means. Right. And Yashar itself means upright. So Yasharel is the upright in L the upright in L. And this is part of the reason why we use the name Yasharel and not Israel or Ishrael, but rather Yasharel. Okay? Okay.
All right. Any other questions on that? Um, go ahead. Wait, let's let's go to the, the Jessica Moore. That's I know that I know you're not Jessica Moore up there. <laughs> I know. Hold on, Joy. There, there we go. I think you can hear me now. I finally found the unmute button. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, question on verse 24. I'm just going to read it and change a word based on what you were teaching earlier, and I wanted your take on it. And Yaakov was left alone, and there wrestled Adam with him until the breaking of day. Hmm. Is that how it would be in the Hebrew? Well, that is a very good question. And that's the kind of question that really requires us to look and not guess. Because if we guess, we're going to get it wrong. So we're looking at... Uh, we're looking at Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. Let me see if I can get my e-sword open, and I'll tell you what it is, what the word there is, and that, that way we can tell. Because you have several words for man, right? One is ish, ish. Right. Another one is adam, which means both mankind and, and a particular man. Right, let me see if I can get this. Genesis 32, verse 24, and let's see. Okay, so, ve lachach vayi abarim et ha-nachla vayi abar et asher. 32.24. See, this, uh, this is very possible that this is numbered differently in here. Uh, yeah, see, actually, if you want to know the truth of it, it does not say a man in the passage at all. Man doesn't appear in the passage. So essentially what it says here is just but I want to make sure I get the first word. Okay. Okay, so it says basically uh take cover at um in a stream, take cover in a stream and cross over at uh that. Now, this is, we're talking about Genesis 32, chapter 20, uh, verse 24, correct? Yeah. Okay. That's the part I'm asking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm seeing that we've got a different number. Okay, just a minute. Portion. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the heel catcher, right? Yaakov. 
Yeah. Yeah. The word that you're looking for is enoche. Enoche. Now, when you deal with the word enoche, this is interesting because they're telling us here, let me give you an example. I'm, I'm going to show this to you so you can see. Uh, And this will give you an example of the kinds of things that we see uh, in the Hebrew. Okay. Now we're going to take a look at, we're going to be looking at 25, okay? And we're going to be looking specifically at this word right here. All right. Now, when we look at this word right here, when we click on this word, and get the strongest word, we get enosh or enoshe. Now, if you look, you can see here that the reference we're being given in Strong's is a word that is spelled like this. Aleph, Nun, Vav, Shin. Enosh. But does that look like what we're seeing there? We're seeing Aleph, Yod, Shin. Right? The word that's circled is Aleph, Yod, Shin. And yet they're telling us the word is Aleph, Nun, Vav, Shin. Why is that? Because the word that is actually there is Ish. It's Ish. Now... It's very important that we look and see that ish, of course, the reason why they can get away with doing that is because it's a form of enosh. Ish is a form of enosh, but it means properly a mortal man. Okay, so the word is categorically talking about a mortal man not an angel and certainly not yeah but talking about a mortal man right it's talking about a mortal man and what's it saying here it's saying in with ad as far as ascend Dawn. Okay. And is what? Carried up, cast up, uh, ascend up to dawn. Okay. So, uh, so uh, they, until the breaking of day, it's a great way to put it. Okay. Thanks for looking into that. Appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. And I mean, think I think it's uh, I think it's a very important uh, question you're asking here. Because it does give some clarity, does give some clarity on this passage in terms of understanding what's happening. Just because Yaakov is saying, well, uh, I saw Yah face to face, does not mean that he saw Yah face to face. And no burping on the microphone. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay. All right. So with that, I think. Stephen, yes. Stephen, I have. Uh, I I was praying about this area of the Torah. 
and I got woke up and I got this about uh, the comparison of this this uh, operation of looks like Jacob's troubles to me, hmm. and the compare and the comparison to uh, the great tribulation. Yeah, and then and then and then in like verse twenty two it said the eleven. And I got woke up and he and, and I got who's missing? Who's missing? I went, Oh, it's Benjamin that's missing. And then I saw in the eleven after uh, the uh, son of perdition was removed, the eleven received the great commission. Well, who's missing? Who's missing? Well, who was born out of due season? It was uh Romans chapter 11, verse, I mean, chapter 11, verse one, it talks about he was added and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Right so so that, 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 that covered the 12. And so then it went on to talk about, well, don't, don't uh, keyhole this whole transition because it goes into a big, it's a really big operation because we're talking about Esau and Edom, and this is overcoming. Would he have had the shalom with him if his name wasn't changed? And I went, oh, I see. That was a big, that ushered in. Wait a minute. Say that again for a second, Dave. He, 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 would he have had the shalom with Esau if he hadn't had his name changed when he came face to face with him? And because of that transition right there, you can't keyhole that whole Jacob's trouble because you get into the uh, Great Tribulation and the transitions that happen through that whole period of the uh, of the Great Trial, and 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 it's and it's comparative to things that we see in this foreshadowing, and it also gets he got into well, when did they actually go and do what he uh, they asked him to do? Well, it got into, well, Jerusalem had to fall. Jerusalem had to fall underneath the false, the false uh, Messiah, Bar Kokhba. And when it got torn down, they finally got scattered out to do what they were commanded to do to begin with. Otherwise, they were stuck in there in Jerusalem, and they weren't actually doing it. But when they got, when Jerusalem got wiped, then they actually went out and uh, were about the business of, of uh, the Great Commission. Benjamin is a type and a shadow. He got laid up for 13 years uh, uh, before he was sent. Well, there's an in indication that the wholeness of the 12 had a process, the process. And, he, and, and I'm sorry, Yaakov's trouble is bigger than I thought it was because look how big this is. Now, Yerushalayim fallen, and not one, not one man-hewn stone was laid upon another. It was cast down by a government that actually came against a man-made uh, uh, revolt with a false with a false messiah. I'm going. Are we seeing that now, right now? And I'm going. Oh, we may be seeing this right now with this man-made government. With, with I'm just, I don't want to get too far into it because I, I, I don't want to take too much of your time or the time, but uh, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for allowing me to, it was just a real interesting. No, it's an interesting thing. thought. And while we're at it, let's give a thought from Angelo, but Angelo, you got to show your face to speak, brother. 
There you are. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting also that when you were sharing that with Anash as in Anush and different ones, you see in the book of Daniel, I believe it's 7, 13, could be, it's, I think it's 7 chapter, talks about the Son of Man. You have a different spelling than you do in here in uh, in 34, excuse me, 32, 24. And so one talking about mortal man, another one talking about man. It's just interesting, the subtleties of that, when you look at it in the context, you know, the larger context. Yeah, and when you talk about Daniel, it's it's a difficult equation to, to cross into Daniel because Daniel was originally written in Aramaic. And right. Aramaic is going to have a different form of expression across that. And so uh, that's pretty much what we see there. And so, but you're right, the subtleties are different. And those subtleties do come through and make a big difference. Okay, let's continue. Can I share just one, one last thing briefly? This goes out at the beginning with, with Brian's thought back in the point of the our Mashiach having water and uh, blood coming out. In, when, in the book of Lucas, there's the mention of him as he's speaking and he's showing himself. He says, touch me, I am flesh and bone. He doesn't say flesh and blood. And I don't think that's a subtlety for some reason. Hmm. Yeah, very good point. That that maybe the glorified body is blood free. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Okay. All right, Joy. Let's go ahead and pick it up at chapter thirty-three. Okay, I just wanted to say something. You know how we were talking about that cave at the last tour or two. You know where it spells Yasharel that Abraham. Yeah. Purchased. I think that's cool. Abraham knew a long time ago what was, that Yasharel was coming, right? Was he alive? He wasn't alive when Yakov was alive, was he? Yes, he was. Oh, for how long? Uh, well, it's going to be for a while because when you're talking about Abraham, it's very interesting. When you look at the bloodline, at least in the years that are given to us in the text that we accept, not the Septuagint, Shem is still living. The son of Noah. That, yes, you're right. You're right. Shem outlives. I just think it's cool. And he yeah. outlives Yaakov. And, he, and the only one to outlive Shem is Yasharel. Otherwise, Shem outlives Yitzhak. And he outlives Abraham. He outlives both of them. But yeah, I believe Abraham was still living at the time of Yaakov. I think he saw his his uh, ch the children of Yitzhak. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. And Yaakov lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld Esau came and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the land, he put the handmaid maids and their children foremost and Leah and her children after and Raquel and Yosef hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Okay, now stop there. And he, hold, hold on. Look at this for a second. You think about if you're one of his kids, right? What's the story you tell later? Well, he didn't love us very much because when it came to meet Esau, he put Zilpah and Bilhah and Dan and Zebulun and Gad and, you know, he put them out there first. If you're going to kill wives and kids, kill them. And then if, if, you know, if you're going to kill somebody after that, well, then kill Leah and her children, right? 
But Raquel and Yosef will keep them in the far back. These, you know, very clear expression in Yaakov of which kids he cared about and in what order, right? Okay, let's go ahead and pick up verse three. Okay. And he passed over before him, bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the woman and the children and said, close with you. And he said, the children which Elohim has graciously given your servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Yosef near, near and Raquel. And they bowed themselves. And he said, what do you mean by all this drove which I met? And he said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Adonai. And Esau said, I have enough, my, my brother. Keep that you have unto yourself. And Yaakov said, Nay, I pray you, if now I have found grace in your sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of Elohim, and uh, you were pleased with me. Yeah. yeah. Baby. Take, I pray you, my blessing that is brought to you because Elohim has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go. And I will before you. And he said unto him, my Adonai knows what the children are tender and the flocks and the herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Adoni, I pray you pass over before his servant and I will lead on softly accordingly as the cattle that goes before me and the children be able to endure until I come unto my El Adoni unto Sierra. And Esau said, let me now leave you leave with you some of the folk that are with me. And he said, what needs it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Adonai. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sierra, and Yaakov journeyed to Sukkoth and built him a house and made Sukkoth for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Okay, now let's stop there for a second. You see a promise by, you know, Esau is saying, well, Yaakov, why don't you take your flocks and your kids and stuff and go out in front and I'll be behind you. And I'll kind of herd you into Sire. And you can come under my government. You can come under my authority. You can come under my tribes and my chiefs. And Yaakov says, well, I can't do that because my herds will die if we push them that hard. So therefore, let me just kind of hang out with the cattle and with the sheep let them move on their own accord, and we'll get there when we get there. And I'll see you in Sayer. And Esau says, okay, well, then I'll go ahead and take off, and then you catch up. And as soon as Esau takes off for Sayer, Yaakov goes in a different direction. And he goes down to this place called Sukkot. Okay, is there any place in Israel that you know of that's called Sukkot? No. But there is a place that's directly referenced in the book of Shemot, when the children of Israel leave 
they leave and they go to a town called Sukkot. That's the very first, that's their very first definition. Their very first destination is to go to Sukkot. What is this about, right? Where is the Sukkot? And then Yaakov is not going to stay in Sukkot, but he's going to go to Shalem. He's, and Yaakov came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So he's no longer in the land of Sair. He's no longer in the land of Edom. But rather, he left and he goes to Shalem. Now, what's Shalem? Yavru Shalem, right? This is the city where Shem was appearing as Malachi Tzedek to Avraham. Malachi Tzedek came out of the gates of Shalem and presented Avraham with bread and wine. And this whole issue of Avraham giving a tenth of everything he had to Malachi Tzedek takes place at Shalem, which is identified here as the city of Shechem. So Shechem is not just a city, but rather a region. And Shechem is a region in the land of Canaan when he came from Padan Aram. So we see that Yaakov, having been under the tenure of Lavan, and Lavan literally means what in Hebrew? What does it mean? White. Right? When you talk about Lebanon, that's it gets its name from White Hills. The White Hills of Lebanon is called white because Leban is white. Leban's last name was white, or his name was. I mean, if you were talking about it in English, you could literally put his name down as Whitey, capital W, Whitey. And we went up to visit Whitey and his daughters. And so when you talk about Leah and Raquel, they were the daughters of Whitey that he found in Padam Aram. And he left Padan Aram and he went down to meet Esau. And Esau took off for the hills of Sair. And Yaakov lies to him. I'm going to follow you. And then he doesn't. He just kind of drifts away to a different region, and he goes down and he play, creates this place called Sukkot, which means what? Booths, right? Sukkot. A sukkah is a booth. And it's a booth of a, of a particular kind of configuration. Let me tell you what a sukkah is not. A sukkah is not an RV. Okay? <laughs> yeah. When you go to Sukkot in all these places, everybody shows up in their RV. A sukkah is not an RV. A sukkah is a booth that is built primarily to hold cattle, and they would take it and pile palm leaves and other limbs on top of it to keep the rain out for a short period of time. This was the place where Mashiach was born. He was born in a sukkah, not in a manger. Manger is, you know, this is a, a Roman articulation based on a Greek mistranslation, and on and on and on it goes. But when you see here that what takes place is Yaakov is going to build booths or corrals, if you will, for his cattle, sukkah, and then the place would be called Sukkot because he built many pens for his cattle. He obviously had a lot, and he built many pens for his cattle and for his sheep and for his goats and for his camels. And then he continues on to Shal the city of Shalem, which was the city of the region called Shechem, which was in the land of Canaan when he had left Padan Aram and he pitched his tent before the city, 
and he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he erected there an altar and called it El, Elohai Yasharel. Interesting, huh? Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's continue on chapter 34, and I'll try not to interrupt you. No, that was great. And Yaakov, Yaakov come, came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Did, did we read that already? I know you were talking about it. We're not. Am I, am I reading the right verse? Go ahead, Joy. Pick it up where you were reading. Go okay. Ahead. And pitched his tent before the city, and he bought a parcel of a field, which he spread his tent at the hand of the children of Shamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected an altar there and called it El Elohai Asherel. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bore unto Yaakov, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Shemor, the Shivi, prince of the country saw her he took her and he lay with her and defiled her and his soul clave unto Dinah the daughter of Yaakov and he loved the damsel and spoke kindly unto the damsel and Shechem spoke unto his father Shemor saying get me this damsel to be my woman and Yaakov heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter now his sons with his were with his cattle in the field. And Yaakov held his peace until they were come. And Shemur, the father of Shechem, went out into El Yaakov to commune with him. And the sons of Yaakov came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Yasharel in line with Yaakov's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Shemar communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you give her to him to be his woman. Oh, they can't even begin to see what they're going to do to him. Okay. And make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get ye possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give accordingly, according as you sh shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to be my woman. And the sons of Yaakov answered Shechem, and Shemur his father deceitfully, and said, Because he has defiled Dinah, their sister and they said unto him we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised for that i thought this was a good uh, battle plan for that was a word reproach unto us but in this we we consent unto you if ye will be as we be that every male of you be circumcised then we will give our daughters unto you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughters, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Shemor and Shechem, Shemor's son. 
And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Yaakov's daughter. And he was more honorable than all the house of his father. Okay, now and Shemar, stop, there, stop there for a second, Joy, because I find this passage very interesting that Levi and Shimon, you know, get so outraged about this whole idea. Well, you've defiled our sister, Dina, right? It's always the brothers. Right. Particularly in Italian families, it's always the brothers. They're just not going to put up with it, right? Right. But something you have to keep in mind is that Judah, when you go and you look at uh, Judah's relationship, when he finds this daughter of Shua, he just takes her. There's no marriage. There's no nothing. He just takes her. He does the same thing to the daughter of Shua, who becomes the mother of my three sons, you know, Ur and Onan and all those guys. And he just takes her. But in this case, oh, well, this guy who took Dina on a similar basis, that's outrageous. Now we have to kill them all, right? And we're going to, so let's, let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 20 and let's see how it goes. And by the way, there's a great recitation of this story in the book of Jasher. Because in the book of Jasher, you find out just exactly how widespread this thing actually goes. Because for these guys to agree, for Hamor and Shechem to agree to circumcision, becomes a huge deal among the Canaanites. It's like, why did you do that? You know, you betrayed your own religious practices. You repaid, You betrayed your traditions. You betrayed your way of things to come like them. Why did you do that? And I think that the recitation of these facts in Jasher is an excellent representation and a very good alliteration of what takes place here. Well, let's go ahead. Let's pick it up at verse 20, Joy. Okay. And Shemar and Shechem, his son, came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters just for women and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. Okay. And now, unto Shamor. Stop there for just a second. So here we have an interesting issue of immigration, don't we? Mm -hmm. We have an immigration issue here. This is our land, and these people are coming into our land, and they want to dwell with us. So what's the argument that's being raised? Well, diversity is our strength. We should allow these people in, and that way we can be one people with us. They can dwell with us. We can share their cattle. We can share their expertise. They can bring their knowledge base to bear. We can marry their daughters. Their sons can marry our daughters. Let's bring them in and integrate them into our society, right? This diversity will be our strength. All we have to do is take on their religious doctrine of circumcision, which is a very personal situation, right? This is not, let's just change a point of view or let's put on a, a different kind of hat. No, this is not just a hat. 
This is something very, very deeply personal that is going to be scar tissue for the rest of your life, right? And right. so this is this is a significant issue. Now, I want to ask you the question when we look at this now. When you talk about immigration, imagine, if you will, for instance, uh, when we talk about immigration coming over the southern border in the United States, and we say, well, we we really like these guys, and we want to be able to marry their daughters, and we want their sons to be able to marry our daughters, we want them to contribute to the society. The only condition is that we all have to switch over to speaking Spanish. Right? Or if you look at the situation in the UK, and you look at the situation in Europe, well, we really like these people. Let's invite them in here and let's have our our sons marry their daughters and their sons marry our daughters. And the only problem is we have to convert to Islam. Yeah. Right? Right? Okay, right. Let's, let's, see, let's see how this story goes in the Torah portion. Let's pick it up in verse 25 or verse 25. Can I ask you one question? We're, aren't we dealing with mixed DNA here with fallen angel DNA well, with the Canaanites? I mean, you know, I mean, that's a, that is a question, right? That is a question. I mean, and of course, you know, we talked again, we kind of talked about this last night. When you look at Matthew 1, you know, you've got some real problems in Matthew 1. You know, you've got Tamar who was engaged in an incestuous relationship with her father in law that brought forth Perez. You have Rahab the prophet, uh, the, the prostitute. You have Ruth the Moabite. You have Bathsheba the adulteress. All of these are women that are named in the the uh, genealogy in Matthew 1. What's going on there? Well, it doesn't reflect that Sarah had a miraculous mtDNA in her, and Miriam ended up with the miraculous Y-DNA in the creation of Mashiach, that Mashiach had miraculous mitochondrial DNA and Y-DNA that was the creation of Yahusha. So a unique genealogy, a unique DNA, completely unique like no other, and no other to follow. No other to follow. The DNA of Mashiach, unique and miraculous and completely pure of the defilement of all of the other people that are listed in that genealogy. So what's the bottom line when you see all this, when you see this crazy litany of people in Matthew 1? They're irrelevant. They're irrelevant. So when we when we start talking about this, are these did these people, these Hevites and 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 Hittites and Emirates and so on and so forth, did they have a mixed up DNA? It's possible that they did. It's possible that they had a mixed DNA. But it is also possible that their DNA was just simply not that of Yasharel. Either way, you're going to see, well, let's pick it up. Let's let's pick it up at verse 25 and let's see what happens here. Okay. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore, the two of the sons of Yaakov, Shimon, and Levi, Levi and Dina, brethren, took man, eat, each man his sword, and came upon the city boldly, and slew all the males. And they slew Shemar and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went in. The sons of Yaakov came upon the slain and spoiled the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, and that which was in the city, that which was in the field. 
and all their wealth and all their little ones and their women took they captive and spoiled upon all that was in the house. And Yaakov said unto Simon and Levi, you have troubled to me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanim and the Prezrim, and I few a number. They shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as a harlot? Yeah, so here we are. You got a couple of hotheads, right? You got a couple of hotheads, and Yaakov is going to disapprove of them. When you get to Genesis 49, he literally kicks them out of the house and says, these guys are violent, have nothing to do with them. And in the middle of that nothing to do with them, what do you see takes place? You see, Levi ends up in the priesthood and only in the priesthood. And Shimon ultimately departs. It's like Shimon, yeah, give him the Negev. You know, he can live south of Judah. Given the desert down there, we don't really want to hang out with Shimon. And when you look at numbers, you find out that the tribe of Shimon basically departed from the exodus of Moshe. It was a very small tribe that that uh, ultimately arrived into the in the promised land because they left. They got fed up with it. And who does Shimon end up being? It's the house of Sparta. It's the house of Sparta in the Peloponnese. That's who Shimon ends up being. And guess what? They're violent. They're a violent group of people. Warrior. They're a warrior band, right? And so these guys are like, we don't care if you're going to get destroyed. We're not going to put up with them making our sister into a harlot. Let's get in there and kill everybody. We can care less if you end up getting destroyed, right? Because they're hotheads. They're irrational, right? But 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 it's important to see that Yaakov, here's Yaakov's trouble, Right? Ye have troubled me. I'm Yaakov, and you have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaim and the Perizim, because you have done this thing. And it was one thing. I mean, okay, look, we don't like Shechem because he raped our sister. Well, then go kill Shechem. Right, not the whole place. Not the whole city and kill everybody and take their wives and kids and then steal their goats and, and all the, everything else that they have. What is this all about, right? They just, they went completely over the top. And what happened as a result of them going over the top? They made Yaakov stink. See, Yaakov says, well, now I, now I stink. Well, guess what? That's what happens when you when you go excessively. You stink. You stink among the people of the land. Uh, uh, boss, did you have something you want to say there, brother? Yeah, a couple of things. Um... If you read uh, Jubilees, then they're stated that it's been reckoned to them as righteousness. That was very interesting to, to read. And the the people in Shechem are Canaanites and parasites. And they are from the seven uh, peoples where Yah later says, destroy them when they go into the land. So I think there's much more to say about this stuff also. Secondly, uh, I was suddenly thinking about the forcing into um, circumcision, where do we hear that also in Galatians? So if you let yourself circumcise for the wrong reason, 
it will be as a curse to you. So that's the couple of your marks. Yeah, very good point. And of course, you know, Paul's argument on the circumcision, I think is an absolutely brilliant argument. Because he points out that even those who are circumcised in the flesh, by their transgression of the Torah, can become uncircumcised. They're considered uncircumcised. Oh, you transgressed the Torah. Therefore, we shall treat you as the uncircumcision. This is how it's put in the Torah. So Paul says, if it's possible for the circumcised to become uncircumcised, how relevant is the circumcision in the flesh? It's irrelevant. It is the circumcision of the heart, which is the only circumcision that is really relevant. And to the extent that people want to uh, give alliteration to the physicalness of circumcision, the circumcision of Mashiach, where blood was let with the circumcision of Mashiach, was a blood atonement for the uncircumcised, rendering the necessity of circumcision irrelevant. The kingdom is opened to the circumcised and the uncircumcised by the blood of, of Mashiach. And this is what's really written in Galatians 5.3, not the way it's been translated in the church. Okay, now, when you talk about this business here of these guys being circumcised in order to accommodate or to cover the rape, that is going to be a fatal error. And the book of Jasher talks about it extensively, about how they're indicted for doing that by their own people. Now, also, when you mentioned the fact that, and this is what Joy was asking, was there tainted DNA among these people? Now, it's possible that if this was the case, that this was tainted DNA or triple helix DNA that was being found in the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites. And the Parasites, you know, as you know, are the governing class in the United States right now. I don't know if they're of this tribe, but we always refer to them as the Parasites. But I, that's a difference. <laughs> anyway, but... But when you look at but when you look at this idea of we have to eliminate these people group from the land, that Yah was expelling a tainted DNA because again Genesis six four tells you that that they were there before the flood and after they were there before the flood and after, and there's no question about the fact that when we get up to the book of Joshua and Joshua enters into the land, he finds giants in the land david even has to deal with the giant right so yeah th those are all very good points uh, boss and i appreciate that and by the way welcome it's good to see you again by the way thank you okay let's continue with chapter 35 now you're going to get into some adventurous stuff here uh you got some real issues ahead of you joy okay well i'm gonna go for it <laughs> okay, <all laughs> unless right. you want someone else to go for it but no, no, go ahead. Go for it. Okay. And Elohim said unto Eliako, Arise and go to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto Elohim that appeared unto you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Then Yaakov said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange Elohim that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto Elohim, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. Okay, and they hold, gave. Hold it, hold it right there, Joy. 
Put away the strange Elohai that are among you. Now, this is Yasharel talking to his own camp. He's talking to his own camp. Who had strange Elohai? Raquel. Raquel, I mean. <laughs> Raquel had teraphim, didn't she? She had shrunken heads. And she kept them trapped in the camel's furniture so she could steal them away from her dad. And she still had the shrunken heads. And he's like, hey, you got to get rid of the shrunken heads. We can't do this anymore. We're going up, we're going up to Beit El. Where's Beit El? That's where he saw the dream. Remember of the angels ascending and descending? That happened yeah, at Beit El. That's yeah. where he anointed the rock, right? We're going back to Beit El. You can't, you can't show up with these strange Elohim. You can't show up with Teraphim. Yah's going to judge us. You can put get rid of these. And while you're at it, take a shower. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or in the immortal words of, uh, what's her name, Cloris Leachman, you might want to put on a tie, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, okay. Verse four. Verse four. And yeah. And they gave unto El Yaakov all the strange Elohai which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Yaakov hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. Now, wait a minute. And they wait a minute. Why is he hiding them under an oak? Why didn't he burn them? Why didn't he get rid of them? What's he doing hiding them under the oak up at Shechem? Good question. Hmm. They're, because they're going to come back to him, aren't they? Yep. And they journeyed, and the terror of Elohim was upon the cities that were round about them. And they did not pursue after the sons of Yaakov. And Yaakov came to Luz, which is the land of Canaan, which is Betel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Betel, because there Elohim appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rivka's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bedel under the, an oak, and the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Okay, now here we are again. Now, Yaakov came to Luz. Okay? Now, again, this is a, a place that is worthy of consideration and worthy of research to look at what's talking about here. Where was Luz? Okay? And so there's some interesting discussion online, by the way, when you look this up, where it was Luz, and uh, you'll find some interesting stuff. But here he is. Let's call this, build, let's build an altar here, and let's call it A.L. Bait L. Okay, but what happens? Before he gets to Bait L, he takes the idols and the earrings, and he buries them under an oak. And when they get to Bait L, the nurse of Rivka dies and they bury her where under, under an, an oak. oak right they bury her under an oak so it's very interesting that Yah would exact this judgment you're going to bury idols under an oak then I'm going to take my beloved from you and you can bury her under an oak okay all right let's keep going and Elohim appeared unto El Yaakov again when he came out of Paddan Aram and blessed him, and Elohim said unto him, Your name is Yaakov. Your name shall not be called any more Yaakov, but Yasharel shall be your name. And he called his name Yasharel. And Elohim said 
unto him, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall be of you, and kings shall come out of your loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Gitchak to you, I will give it, and to your seed after you will I give the land. And Elohim went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And Yaakov set a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. And Yaakov called the names of the place where Elohim spoke with him, Bethel. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was a little way to come to Ephrata. Ephrata. Ephrata, okay. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Raquel travailed and she had hard labor and it came to pass when she was in too hard labor that the midwife said unto her, fear not, you shall have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Amim. And Raquel died and was buried in the way of Euphratha, which is Bethlehem. Lechem. Which is Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Or Beth yeah, Bethle Bethlehem. Yep, yeah, I'm sorry. You want yeah. someone else to do it? No, no, keep going, Joy. You're doing all right. Okay. And Yaakov set a pillar under her, upon her grave, and that's the pillar of Raquel's grave unto this day. Okay, so what we see here is where is where did Raquel die? She died in Bethlehem, Ephrata, or Ephrata, right? And so right. this is and now maybe you can say maybe the correct pronunciation is F Ephrata. 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 Because of course, again, when we talk about the, the Hebrew pronunciation, we talk about the idea of the Hebrew pronunciation is this that you see the you have what's called the ultimate uh the ultimate emphasis. The ultimate emphasis is on the last syllable of the word in every case in Hebrew, except when you have two as in a row, like derek or melek. So when you have melek or derek, or anytime you have two e's in a row, eh, eh, the pronunciation is what's called the penultimate pronunciation, which is the second to the last syllable. So, you have emphasis on the last syllable in all words in Hebrew, except when it's an eh, eh, in which case it's the penultimate, derek, melek, okay? So in this case, ephrata, ephrata, beit, lechem. Now here you see a, a, a typical example, lechem, bread, you have eh, eh, lechem. So it's not lechem, it's lechem. Beit Lechem. And this is where we get Bethlehem. Okay? So it's Beit Lechem. All right. Okay, let's pick up in 21. And Yasharel journeyed and spread his tent beyond Megal Eder. And it came to pass when Yasharel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Yasharel heard it. Now the sons of Yaakov were twelve. The sons of Le Leah, Reuven, and Yaakov's firstborn, and Shimeon, and Levi, and Yehuda, and Yisachar, and Zebulun, 
the sons of Raquel, Yosef, and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Yaakov, who, which were born unto him in Padan Aram. And Yaakov came unto Eliachek, his father, unto Mamre, and Kiryat Arba, which is in Chevron, where Abraham and Yitchek sojourned. And the days of Yitchek were a hundred and fourscore years. And Yitchek gave up his ruach and died, and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Yaakov buried him. Now, these are the generations. I go to 36. What's the... Okay, okay, just tell now, me when to stop. Joy, I think I'm going to take over here and reading chapter 36, okay? Because there's nothing but names here. And let me go through these, okay? Is that yeah, right? that way I can learn more. No, I want to learn better. Okay, all right. Okay, thanks, Joy. Okay, mm -hmm. now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom, right? Esau, who is Edom. It's right there, right in your face. Esau took uh, his woman of the daughters of Canaan. Okay, here he is. He's marrying kids of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Chiti, and Oholivama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Sivon, the Chivi, and Basmat, Yishmael's daughter, the sister of Neviot. And Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, and Basmat bore Reuel. And Oholivama bore Yeish, and Yalam, and Korak, and these are the sons of Esau, which were born unto him in the land of Canaan. And Esau took his women and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all his beasts and all his substance, which he had gotten in the land of Canaan, and went into the country from the face of his brother Yaakov. For their riches were more than that they might dwell together. And the land wherein they were strangers could not bear both of them because of their cattle. Thus, Esau dwelt in Mount Sair, and what? Esau is Edom. That's about as flat-footed as you get, okay? It's right there. And these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomim at Mount Sair. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the woman of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basmat, the woman of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. And Timnah was a concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. Timnah, the concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bore to Eliphaz, who? Amalek. Amalek. Okay? So we can see that the firstborn son of Esau is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz had a concubine whose son was Amalek. So Amalek is a grandson of of Esau, and the uh, who was the uh, the son of the firstborn son of Esau, and these were the son of Adaz, Esau's woman, and these are the sons of Reuel, Nachat, and Zerak, Shammah, and Mitzah. These were the son of Basmat, Esau's woman. Now, again, I want you to think about these names and think about: Are there any places where these names arise as 
chieftains or, or land or geographical areas? And the answer is no, I can't think of any places any, at all. And these were the sons of Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Sivon, Esau's woman, and she bore to Esau, Yeish and Yalam and Korak. Now, here's where we get into the phrasing that we use in the Sefer that is different from what you find in the KJV or in, um, the, in the Geneva or in the Coverdale, or for that matter, most English Bibles. I don't, in fact, I don't think in, there's any other Bible that describes them this way. But these were the Alephim, or the Alephs, if you will, of the sons of Esau. Now, now get this. Take a look at this for a minute. We're, we're going to be ca calling these guys Aleph. But when you think about the name that is found in the Arabic, Caliph, the Caliphate, and Caliph, Caliph would be like Aleph. Let's let's just look at it for just one second. Oh, we aren't sharing screen. <laughs> I guess I should probably go back to sharing the screen here. Let's put that up here. When we look at this now, we can see that with Caliph, you'd have this idea of, let's put up the Aleph first, or the Aleph. So you have this idea, if we're going to spell Aleph, we'll spell it here like this. Aleph. Now, if I wanted to say, well, these guys are like the Aleph, Here's the Aleph here, these guys here, here. And, and these guys are like the Aleph. So if I'm going to put like, then let's put a cough out here. Cough, excuse me. I'm sorry. A cough, Aleph. So this is like, this would be the prefix like. And then this is Aleph, like an Aleph. Well, who's like an Aleph? Well, the Caliph. Who formed the Caliphate? Erdogan, right? So you can see where we get the word Caliph. It comes from the Hebrew Aleph. All right, let's continue. Okay, these are the Alephim of Esau, uh, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, Aleph, uh, what's his name here? Aleph Taman, Aleph Omar, Aleph Zepho, and Aleph Kenaz, Aleph Korak, Aleph Katam, and Aleph Amalek. These are the Elephim that came out of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Ada, and these are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, Aleph Nakath, Aleph Zerach, Aleph Shama, Aleph Mitzah. These are the Alephim that came out of Reuel in the land of Edom. And these are the sons of Basmat, Esau's woman. And these are the sons of Oholifama, Esau's woman. Elif Yeish, Elif Yalam, Elif Korak. And these were the Alephim that came out of Oholifama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's woman. And these are the sons of Esau, who is Edom or Edom. And these are their Alephim. These are the sons of Sair, the Chori who inhabited the land, Lotan and Shoval and Sivon and Anna and Dishon and Etzer and Dishan. Now, who's ever heard of these people? Or who's ever even heard of these regions, right? 
but they were in the land of Sa'ir. These are the Alafim of the Chorim, the children of Sa'ir in the land of Edom. And the children of Lotan were the Chori and the Hamam. And Lotan's sister was Timna. And Timna was the concubine of Eliphaz, who was the son of Esu, whose son was Amalek. And the children of Shovah were these, Alyan and Manachat and Aival and Shefi and Onam. And these are the children of Tzivon, both Aya and Ana. And this was that Ana that found the Yemim in the wilderness as he fed the asses of Tzivon, his father. And the children of Ana were these, Dishon and Oholivama, the daughter of Ana. And these are the children of Dishon, Hemdan and Eshban and Yithran and Cheran. And the children of Etzer are these, Bilhan and Za'avan and Achan. The children of Dishan are these, Uts and Aran. And these are the Alephim that came out of the Chorim, Aleph Lotan, Aleph Shoval, Aleph Tzivon, Aleph Ana, Aleph Dishon, Aleph Etzer, Aleph Dishan. These are the Alephim that came of Hori among the Alephim in the land of Sair. And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Yasharel. So this is very interesting that scripture would see fit to give us this long list of kings and under the, the tutelage of Esu. And Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. And the name of his city was Din Habah. And Bala died, and Yovab, the son of Zerak of Basra, reigned in his stead. And Yovab died, and Husham of the land of Temani reigned in his stead. And Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who smote the Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his stead. And the name of his city was Avit. And Hadad died, and Samla of Masrecha reigned in his stead. And Samla died, and Shaul of Rechovot by the river reigned in his stead. And Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his stead. And Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his stead. And the name of his city was Pau. And his woman's name was Mehet Tavel the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Me-Zahav. And these are the names of the Alephim that came of Esu, according to their families, after their places, and by their names. Elif Timna, Elif Alya, Elif Yethet, Elif Oholivama, Elif Ila, Elif Pinon, Elif Kenaz, Elif Teman, Elif Mivzar, Elif Magdiel, Elif Iram, and these be the Alephim of Edom, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. He is Esu, the father of the Edomim. Okay, so interesting stuff that we see this very concise genealogy talking about the Edomites and Esu. Why is this so incredibly important? that they would list them with such particularity. Anybody have any ideas? Johnny, do you have something here for us? Johnny, are you there? I'm, yeah, I'm here. You gotta show uh, your face, you have to show your face. I know, let me get my eyes adjusted. I'm, I'm trying to sit in the sun as we do a lot of this. Yeah, there you go. Well, not on that. But I had a comment much earlier, and it and it was just about um, 
the deception of this whole family, you know, because it occurred to me as we were reading the story when they when they cross over before they meet um, Esu, there's 11 children, not 12. So Benjamin hasn't been born yet. You know, but then Raquel ends up dying in, in childbirth to Benjamin before the story's over. So when she's sitting on the camel furniture telling her father that she is with the way of women and she cannot get up, meaning that she was having her menstruous and she couldn't get up, right. um, and, and the idols were hidden in the, in the camel furniture, I mean, the whole family had to be in on that. They had to know that she was pregnant with Benjamin. So yeah. anyways, just family deception at work. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. And of course, you know, this whole idea, I mean, you know, you you kind of see, you know, you see the ruthlessness of Yaakov. Oh, well, put Bilha and Zilpa's kids up there first. You know, if they're going to slaughter anybody, you know, slaughter them, right? And then, well, if it gets through them, well, then go ahead and take Leia and her kids, right? So what does Ruben think about this? You put me out there, you know? So now you're mad because I, you know, I'm challenging your authority by going up to your couch with Bilha. You now you're mad at me. You know how could you be mad at me for that? You know when you put me out there to be sacrificed by Esu, and you know, but but when you see this, I I just think there is something here with this litany of all of these kings and queens that are being talked about here in Esu, and and I do think we see. I think we, we see something similar to this in Saudi Arabia right now, you know, because Saudi Arabia is run by quote unquote, the Royal family. And there's like 300 members in that Royal family. And I think, you know, when you're talking about all of these guys being all Kings and stuff, they were all, you know, they were all in within one generation of each other. So it's like, you know, here's, here's grandpa, then here's the sons and here's the grandsons. And they're like the Royal family. Everybody in there is the royal family. Everybody's an Aleph, which means what? They were ruling over. Everybody else was in poverty, and these guys were taking all the goods for themselves. John Barr, have you got an idea on this? Let me unmute here. Uh, yes. <clears throat> um, this is what today's Israel is surrounded by. Edom. The Edomites, this is King Herod, was a converted Edomite. The Herod family were all Edomites. They, all these Edomite people at the time of Maccabees were forcefully converted. And now they've become Islam. Um, and there are about, I don't know, I, I think there are, Somewhere I read quite a while ago, there were 70 something different um, divisions within Islam. The two major ones, the biggest, largest ones are the Shiite and the Sunni, but there's 70 something others. You know, there's Methodist Islams and Presbyterian Islams. <laughs> <laughs> varieties of denominational Islam scattered throughout the Islamic world. And they don't all agree. Um, the big fight in Islam has been, been between the Shia and the Sunni, which is simply 
well, not simply, but it's over who is who is the inheritor of of the heir to Muhammad. So it's a religious, it's an internal religious fight, maybe much like the Protestants and the Roman Catholics in the Christian Christendom history. So all these religions basically come from all these different groups that splintered off from Edom, Esau. Then you throw Ishmael. Ishmael actually, well, maybe Saudi Arabia is Ishmael, the direct son of Abraham, which makes them have a larger voice. But all of this got convoluted in the Bedouin tribes in the Middle East and all the way across North Africa, um, which sort of got separated into what they are now by two world wars. When, when the West basically dictated the boundaries of many of these nations that we see today, that didn't even exist, but they became uh, in existence, probably over, you know, things like the, how, how many people are in this tribe and how many people are in this tribe and, and whoever had the most people got the most land because the Brits or the West wanted, <laughs> wanted negotiators in, in these tribal areas uh, in, their, in their camp, so to speak when it came to dominating that part of the world. Um, it's all political. It's all the kingdoms of this world. And each of these groups got drawn into the last major kingdom, which was Rome, Roman Empire. Even back in the Roman Empire days, they wanted this territory. And they had North Africa and much of Turkey until they ran into the, who was it out there, the Parthians. <clears throat> some other people. So it's just a continuation of who's going to rule the world uh, in the in the larger picture. But it seems like these Edomites and Ishmaelites and the sons and daughters of Keturah and, and um, this uh, Esau in this case are all they all created their separate tribe. Um, almost like, well, we'll do what Jacob did and create a tribe of our own. And these tribes have been splintered off. You could probably talk to some people in the Middle East and they can explain this lineage um, a lot clearly than we in the West can understand. It doesn't mean anything to us as much as it does to them because it's their neighborhood. They can probably say who's who, who they're connected to in, in many cases in the, you know in the Arabian history. Somebody must have brought some of this back from the Crusades. Who who are these people? And they all became united under one uh, religion, Islam. So Islam precedes any government in that part of the world. They are Islam first and whatever else next, which they don't assimilate very well outside of 
Islamic nation. It's going to be a problem. It's already a problem that they've been scattered into the West. Um, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's kind of the mix, the mix of iron and clay, oil and water. It's not made to be that way. You know, that Babel, the Tower of Babel, when everybody was together, was shattered because of this very reason. You will not be together. I'll separate you, Yah said, changed all their languages, forced them to leave one another, get away from one another. In the some of the prophecies of Noah to the three sons is a foretelling of great tragedy where Japheth is going to desire the tents of Shem and make him his servants. You know, him left and went as far south as he could go into, into Africa to get away from Japheth. And the Semitic stayed, but Japheth went north and west, generally, and is coming all the way around the world. I think that's... The Chinese read that thing and see Japheth coming at them. Um, in fact, they expelled colonialism in China. Mao Zedong did not want China to be carved up among European uh, kingdoms like he saw Africa. And, and they, they don't want that. So... It's very interesting where all these folks came from and left. The Shemitic people pretty much stayed right there where the ark stopped in the Middle East. But, you know, Japheth went to Greece and, and the, the scattering began. The scattering of Yashirel, you could trace it to when Joseph was sold into slavery by the brother, went out out of Canaan into Egypt. And it's like they've been scattering ever since. We only have one story of the great exodus, but many individuals probably exodus Egypt. And we see that when we read this material and do research in, in the British Isles in Ireland. They were already out there. All knew it. Jeremiah knew it. Zarah knew it. <laughs> so it's it's fascinating. God, this is Yah's plan. This is Yah's plan when we step back and look at just look at the migration from from the very beginning. Get out of the garden. That's the first migration is get out of the garden. <laughs> right, right. And it's very interesting. Uh, some of my interest, just a side thing, to go to uh, when I was still in the, in the military to go to Kosovo. I was I was backtracking the migrations all the way into Russia, and I saw this probably in 1987 in Washington D.C. when uh, um. There in the mall, there was a there was an exhibition brought in by the Soviets 
um, of the archaeology that's been going on in the Soviet Union, I don't know, 70 years or more, was brought in and, and, and presented in the Smithsonian in a very large ex, ex, exhibition. And it was amazing what they had turned up. And it showed the migrations in detail, the work they had done out of the Middle East, um, out of the areas of Iran, Iraq, the, the Iranian plateau mostly, out of the steppe country, and, and where some of these groups went to going north and west. And I'm like, when? And this is kind of many of the people that were taken into captivity, especially the northern kingdom by Assyria. Assyrian artifacts have been found north, as far north as Belarus. They don't know how far the Persian armies got in an invasion of what is now southern Russia into the Ukraine. And they seem to think they got as far as the Don River going east and as far north as Belarus. But the question is, are the artifacts from the Persian army or are they from stiff tri Scythian tribes that were fighting with the Persians that took souvenirs and moved north and dropped them? There's a ton of material about the Jewish group. Um, There's actually a, a kingdom, I can't remember the name of the kingdom across uh, southern what's now southern Ukraine and over in probably over to the Don River area that was Hebrew. And a um, lot, lot of artifacts. So how far did the Assyrians take the captives? We know Manasseh was way out on the eastern border of Assyria. And, and because they were warriors, the archers and things like that, the records are in the scripture. But when the Babylonians showed up on the eastern border, the, the, those tribes that had been enslaved or carried away probably sided with the Babylonians when Nebuchadnezzar took down Nineveh. All the people that weren't Syrians, Assyrians, who had been transported up there against their will, a couple of generations went by, but they, they knew where they were from. So when they, many of them, became freed because the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian destruction of, of Assyria, many of them went north through the Dariel Gap. They did not go back or stay in the Middle East. And they took their heritage with them. It's very, very mixed up. It's, a, it's, it's just so much stuff, but... One of the ways you can track some of these migrations is by the language, the words in the language. Even the word Scythian, very interesting because there's the term for Scythians in that region called Skiff. There's another term for the Scythians who were nomads, nomadic. It's Saka. Yep. Saka, like Isaac. 
Isaac. Yeah, the sons of Isaac. Yeah, the sons, sons of Isaac. They they they're known all the, you know, it's a big umbrella name, like Scythian. There are many tribes within the Scythian group. Masagate is one. It sounds like Manasseh. They're out on the far side. Yeah, they the killed Mas Cyrus. The Masagate, John, a very interesting tribe. You know that group. Uh, they used to wear like a cone hat. And this is where we get the dunce hat, you know, the, the assignment of the dunce hat. Yeah. Actually, cone hat that, that belonged to the Masagetti, but the Masagetti ultimately ended up very far east. I mean, we're talking about Mongols, right? Yeah. We're talking about a tribe, and this, I believe, is the tribe of Manasha, that the tribe of Manasha was a warrior tribe, very powerful warrior tribe. And they took down Agabeshan by themselves. They didn't need any help. And this is part of the reason why Joshua placed them in the Northeast, because they were going to be the first defense against all comers from the East. That was Manasseh. And when Manasseh mm -hmm. fell, the Northern Kingdom was a sitting duck. They didn't have their bulwark anymore. But Manasseh was taken far to the East, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then the Masagete would eventually emerge all the way. I think the Masagete actually, quite frankly, came over uh, through Alaska and all the way down into North America, and that there is a tie between the um, Athabascans, the Navajo, the Arapaho, the Apache, are all of that same tribe. They all come out of that lineage of of uh, of Masagete. Now, what's interesting about it is that the Alaskan natives here, they call themselves uh, the uh, Denai, and the Denai are... Uh, this is where we get the name Denali for Mount McKinley. We used to be called Mount McKinley. It's called Denali, Denali. Mm -hmm. And uh, Denali means, uh, you know, uh, 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 the place from the Dina. But when you talk about Dina, now this is the same thing with the Navajo and the Arapaho. They also refer to themselves as Dinai or the Dana, Dina. And this comes from the name Dina, who is the daughter who is raped in this particular Torah passage. And they call themselves to this tribe. And this is one of the things that we see historically, that you see people calling themselves of a tribe that is an unusual name. So, for instance, why didn't Abraham say he was Terakim from the son of Terak? Why didn't he call himself Terakim or Nahor, Nahorim from the son of Nahor? He instead calls himself from his great-grandfather, Abru. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I'm Abru. I'm of this tribe, Abru. And it's the same thing with the tribe of Joseph that would call themselves after this northern kingdom king, um, Umri. We're mm -hmm. of, we are of Umri, Ka Umri, Kumri. And the, the same thing with uh, with the house of Ephraim that would call themselves Sa'aka because they, and that would eventually become Saxons because they were called after Isaac. Why is Ephraim called after Isaac instead of Joseph? You know, and and so it is, and so it goes that the tribes would would name themselves after some other tribal leader. Well, Manasseh, and I think it's a particular group from Manasseh that calls themselves after Dina, the daughter, and you know, and I think Dina was instrumental too. I think Dina had a daughter, his name was Asenath, and Asenath was taken as a uh as a stepdaughter by Potiphera 
who would then marry Joseph. Joseph did, in fact, marry his cousin, his first cousin, like everybody else did. Everybody except Abraham, who married his sister, everybody else married his first cousin. You go back and look, you'll see what I'm talking about. So it's very possible that Asenath was his first cousin that he married. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, so anyway, th these are the kinds of things that we see in these tribal relations. But, and, you know, and so, and it's also very interesting that the, the, uh, you go back and you look at the ancient drawings of Genghis Khan. He was red-haired and blue-eyed. Genghis Khan, red hair and blue eyes. Mm. And so, you know, when we see these kinds of things, the, the kinds of perception that we have of this person, that person, and the other person is not necessarily borne out. And, you know, when you talk about the House of Shem too, the House of Shem, and this is something that is going to be very difficult for historians to deal with, but the house of Shem went all the way to Bangladesh. It went all the way to Bangladesh. So when you talk about Semitic people, the Semitic people are most of those people living in India today are Semitic people. Well, the scaring, you know, we, we talk about the house of Shem, but the house of Shem has many splinters. The whole house did not move together. Right. Over the centuries and millenniums, it's because everybody didn't agree or because they got separated by one thing or another. And, and so different groups have splintered off. And sometimes just individuals left. Maybe they were exiled. Maybe they didn't get along, so they got rid of them. But that person survived and went somewhere and met up with somebody else and started, you know, here goes another tribe. All it takes is two. And next thing you know, you got a nation. <laughs> so this kept going on and on and on. Um, it's hard to say where everyone is. Um, the Masagate, it's interesting. It was a, the the king of the Masagate was murdered um, by the Persians. And so his wife took over very powerful story about what happened and and she led the military she led the army and destroyed killed cyrus when they tried to invade they were they were kind of settled down on the eastern side of the caspian sea and um that story is pretty well documented but but so where where are all these people going? They were scattering all over the place. The larger larger groups of each of these, probably the ones that we we can track by language and things like that, that remain together. Um, but it's like really impossible to unravel. That's why I think Yah says I'm going to judge everybody by what's in their heart. Not what church you go to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Anyway, it's it it is a fascinating planet when you start tracking this stuff. And uh, I did. I went from Kosovo to Bulgaria. Then I found I I got to get across the Black Sea, so I wound up going to Russia in English. Right down there, <laughs> right down whatever where everybody came through. It's just awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, that pass down there in that black soil area in uh, Rostov Nadanu, a very interesting turf, you know. And but it is, you know, it's equally true when you look at it that, you know, Russia has this great expression of all these multiplicity of tribes, you know. In particular, I think there's 165 languages spoken across the, the Russian Federation. Yeah, and and these different tribes from you know all different orientation from. Uh, you know, from the uh, Inupiat or Inuit, uh, you know, we used to call them Eskimos, Inupiat or Inuit, to the indigenous natives, to the uh, the Mongols, to the Chinese, to the, you know, et cetera, that are all integrated throughout this. And then you get in, when you get into the the Northern Caucasus there, mostly Islamic areas, the Chechens are, are very distinct breed of people. They're very distinct, you know. And it's the same thing with the Dagestanis and the same thing with the Cherkessis and so on and so forth. You have these very distinct tribes or the Bulgars, the Bulgars in uh, the Balkars in Kabardina Balkaria, right? Uh, Nalchek. The yeah. Balkars are a very distinct people group. I mean, you can recognize them by their genetic markers, you know, not necessarily their language. It's the same thing with the Tubalini in Georgia, the, Tubal yeah. the tribe of Tubal. They know that they're Tubalini. They'll tell you I'm Tubalini. And I've met some of them. They're very interesting because they're a group of people that looks like they've had a hat pressed down on their ears their whole life, right? Because their ears, the top of their ears are kind of flat like this. They, they flatten over the top like that. And so you can see this in all the Tubalini. They got this kind of flat ear over the top. And it's like, where'd that come from? I don't know. But it's just kind of crazy that uh, that it's like that. But you do yeah. see that. You see, particularly in the Caucasus Mountains, you see that kind of expression. But they all have different um, traditional ethnic dress. You can yeah, you right. can tell, yeah, especially when that man put on their Cossack uniforms, if you will. There's different. Well, they, they all have some ethnic connection. Never had time to go spend time with them, but. The Cossacks from the Don dressed differently from the from the Cossacks further down the coast. Um, yeah, they do, and you know the uh, you know I always like those um, sheep hats, you know the ones that oh, are yeah. outside. You know, they put those big furry things on. Yeah, mine's muskrat. Yeah, yeah, from Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we won't talk about a muskrat hat. I was on a search for a muskrat hat in Banff, Canada with uh, Ray and Holly. And we eventually did come up with a muskrat hat. And when we did, it was a very interesting, it was a very interesting situation because we walked into a fur shop. And the question that Ray and I were arguing over is, is wearing fur kosher? That was the question. And we stepped into the fur shop and here's this woman right at the door greeting us. And she starts saying, yeah, well, hello, welcome to my shop. And then the next thing you know, she starts going on with this rabbinical stuff. I'm a <laughs> rabbi, blah, blah, blah. And I, we said, you're a rabbi? She says, yeah. I said, well, then maybe you can answer our question. Is the wearing of fur kosher? Oh, absolutely, because all the blood has gone out of it. Therefore, it's perfectly fine to wear kosher or to wear fur. I said, okay, where's my muskrat hat? <laughs> yeah. And I did eventually get my hat. It's good. Muskrat hat's good to 30 below, I'll tell you what. All right. Well, John, thank you for that. Thank you for your assistance on that. Let's continue on. Let's let's hear from. Thank you, brother. Blessings to you. Let's hear from Felix. Felix, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourselves? Doing all right. What's going on? I'm okay. I um, 
the one thing um, you were saying, basically, and it caught me, um, it, I was thinking the same thing as I was reading this about why would they place this portion of Esau's lineage, you know, why would they do that when he was hated from, it says in the word, he was, he was hated, right? And I was, it, it was just like, why would he be placed here? But what crossed my, what crossed my mind was that, could it possibly be, because I mean, when I look at all this stuff, there's a lot of usurping going on in a lot of places, like with the Maccabees and Macaw, you know, oh, yeah. that, the, um, let me see, the Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz, which is gone, but yet you, there's, you can see some things that you could tie to Ashkenazi Jews, right? Jews. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you could, you, you, when you look at it, it looks, it's, well, it blows my mind, but getting back to the lineage of Esau, is it possible that we're being shown the partial lineage of maybe the anti-Messiah through this? Yeah, I think so. On the if land. You mentioned the anti-Messiah, Felix. I mean, let's just bring it up, okay? There's been some very interesting things that have broken in the last couple of weeks that I was completely unaware of, but it's kind of shocking. One is, is that Charles, King Charles, KC3, has come forward with the proclamation that he is a direct descendant of Muhammad. He is the 43rd grandson of Muhammad, a direct descendant of Muhammad. Now, this claim is very interesting because what John Barr was bringing up earlier was this difference in uh, lineage between Shia and Sunni. So the Sunnis believe that there is a lineage that is essentially a pragmatic lineage. That is to say, the most qualified person becomes the imam that leads Islam. and But in the Sunni world, it is genetic. So that the, the first imam was not, uh, not a, a Fatima, who was the daughter of Muhammad, but her firstborn son, Hussein. And Hussein was the imam, the first imam to succeed from Muhammad. Now, the differences are huge because in Sunni Islam, your chief city is Mecca. And Mecca is essentially where uh, Islam began with, with Muhammad's slaughter of the 600 Quraysh Jews that lived there. Then Islam began in Mecca. And, but the Shia take the view that the most sacred city is Karbala in Iraq, which was the place of Hussein. And so Hussein in Karbala uh, uh, represents Shia uh, Islam. So with King, uh, King Charles III coming out and saying, I'm a direct descendant of Muhammad, it, he's making a claim to the position of 12th Imam. Now, 12th Imam in Islam is the Mahdi. And yes. the Mahdi is for lack of better words, the Antichrist, the Mahdi and the man of lawlessness or this end times figure that rises up is the same figure. They, they do the same thing. They're going to denounce, of course, the faith in the Messiah, and they're going to move the world into Islam. And they're accompanied in Islam. They, they talk about the Dajjal and the yes. Dajjal, the D-A-J-J-A-L, Dajjal. And the yeah. Dajjal is a wicked person. We might refer to him as the false prophet. But the Dajjal has a bad right eye and has a bad right arm. 
Uh, now, this person is identified, I believe it's in Zechariah 14, talking about the worthless shepherd who also has a bad right eye and a bad right arm. Now, equally true is in Islamic eschatology, there is an end time figure called Isa. And Isa is the the uh, Islamic term for Jesus. Isa. Yeah. yeah. And it's very similar to the uh very similar to the Roman term Yesu. And Yesu is the is the Latinized spelling of Esu, which is Esau. And so wow. we see some we see some very interesting things. And so let me just share the whiteboard for a second and we can look at how these names break out, because we talked about this really kind of extensively last night, and there's been some very good points that have been made about uh, about this issue. Now, when we talk about Yahusha, we see the name Yahua encaptured in the name Yahusha. Yahua, Yahusha. The only difference is there's a sheen in there. Now, Let's put this up here so we can we can see. So you have this idea of e a u sha. Now, with this, we see also that the dot over the sheen is here sha, right sha. But when we look at the name Esau, we see Esau is written just exactly the opposite of the end of this. With the shin here and the vav here. So you can see how this is inverted to create the name Esu. You see that? It's inverted to create the name Esu. And with this idea, so in this instance here, this is pronounced Asu, the, the ein is pronounced a, a, and the this shin is pronounced sin, sa, and the vav is pronounced with a uh with a uh uh shurig. So this is a su. So the Latin the Latins wrote this as e. Yesu. Okay, a very interesting, uh, interesting combination. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, did Miriam name her son Esau? And that's a question, right? But this name here has been transferred into Arabic as the name Isa, like this, Isa. Now, in the Arabic world, they believe that Isa uh, is going to be an end-time figure, that he's going to be born again, and that he will die. But during his lifetime, he is here to convert Christians away from the faith to get all Christians to understand that Allah has no son. Okay? And so this is the basic push this is the basic push of Islam, is to say Allah has no son. Now, I think that all of history and all of creation cries out 
for Yah to make himself manifest in the flesh. That, that Yah must make himself manifest in the flesh to be a completion of the triadic expression of all of existence, of consciousness, matter, and energy. All of this had to happen. So Yah, the, at some point, Yah was going to make himself manifest in the flesh, and he did in Yahusha. When you look at what I was talking about on Thursday night, we get into more of this same kind of discussion when we talk about El Chaim. There's no O in Elohim. It's El Chaim. And then even then, it could, it may not be El Chaim, but El Hayam. And so then if that's the case, then you see what? You see something very interesting in Genesis 1. In the beginning, created El, the sea, the heavens, and the earth. And, you know, uh, the 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 um, existence was formless and void, and the the ruach hovered over the waters. That's what it's talking about. The ruach hovered over the waters, over the sea. And what is waters? Now, if we look at that, let's go back to the whiteboard for a second. I'll show you how this turns out to be something quite interesting, particularly concerning the name Yahusha. Okay. Now, if we take if let me let me just get this here just one second let's get this out here take this out of here okay now if we look at the idea of el hayim being el hayam so what you see in the word is you see this idea of aleph lamed that's the l part and then in the spelling, you have the ha, yod, mem. Now, we're told that this is Elohim because somebody adds an O right here. Well, let's put an O in there. Let's put a holem right there, and we'll call that Elohim. Well, no, there's no O. That's an invented letter. So what if this is two words? Then this is El, and then the next word is Hayim. But is it Hayim? Going back to what we've been discussing all day, we've been talking about the idea that is when you when you analyze this, you have to ask yourself the question: Are these two let? Is this a common prefix? And the answer is He is the most common prefix. He is the most common prefix, meaning the. then is this a primary root? And the answer is, yes, it is. This is the word yam, which means sea. All right. Now, take a look at this word. If we put this word up here, this is mayim. This is the word for water. All right. Let's go back and do a similar analysis. One, is this a common prefix? Yes, it is. It's the prefix that means from. Is this a primary root? Yes, it's yam, meaning sea. So what is mayim? From the sea. From the sea. All right. Now, what if we were to add one more prefix? 
and we put a sheen here. Oh, Shemaim, which means heavens, right? Heavens. The chaos of the waters. Chaos from the sea. Chaos from the sea. Well, that's interesting because what do we see in the difference between Yahweh and Yahusha? We see in Yahweh Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, these three here are exactly similar. This one shows chaos. The chaos, what? The chaos of creation. Because what does it say? And this is the thing when, when we get into this discussion on the flat earth, this is where we miss the point. Because look, when you talk about, it says here, look, it says, and Elohim made the expanse or the firmament, however you want to put it, the rikia, and divided the waters which were under the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And Elohim called the expanse all that which divided the waters from above from the waters below, he called heaven. He called Shamaim. He called Shamaim. So this is why this shin here is going to say, this is creation. This is the material world that exists between the waters above and the waters below. And so this, when you see that Yahuwah is made flesh, we can see that yod heh vav now takes on the sheen. You see that? yod heh vav now takes on the sheen to become Yahusha. See, and so all of this is kind of found, if you will, it's the found in this idea of El Hayam, that Yahweh or that Elohim created the sea, the heavens and the earth. The, the sea was everything, and the sea, which constituted the waters above and the waters below, would be divided by the Shemaim. Would be divided by Shemaim, and this Shemaim is called heaven. Is the expanse of the rakia, the firmament Shemaim, and what this is the material world, and this material world means that Yahweh is going to necessarily have to have the sheen in his name because he's going to be manifest in the material world. Okay, I'm going to stop my ridiculous explanation here, but I wanted to show you that so that you could see that there is something in this. So, Felix, when you're talking about the Antichrist coming out of this bloodline, okay? Yes. We have something here that is really starting to manifest, and that's why I'm saying we're starting to see this thing now. Now, you know, when you read the passage in 2 Thessalonians, it says, until that which is taken out of the way, the man of lawlessness will not be revealed, right? In 2 Thessalonians 2, very the most important chapter, because, again, this is Paul's prophecy. This is why people want to say, oh, Paul's a false prophet. Well, I disagree, my friends, because his prophecy in 2 Thessalonians 2 is absolutely a core prophecy concerning what's happening. And he says, let no man deceive you by any means, for the day shall not come except there comes a falling away first. Now, the falling away is in place right now. The apostasy yes. is in place right now. Yes. Okay. And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The man of sin, the son of perdition, right? 
who opposes and exalts himself above everything that is called Elohim. Do you realize that Charles has established two crowns for himself? One declares him to be king of the earth, and the other declares him to be, excuse me, God of the earth, and the other declares him to be God of the universe. Did you know that? He has two crowns declaring himself to be these things. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called Elohim, or that is worship, so that he, as Elohim, sits in the temple of Elohim, showing himself that he is Elohim. This is about to happen. This is about to happen. And he says, remember not that when I was with you, I told these things, and now you know that that which withholds, that he might be revealed in his time. What was withheld? What was withheld was his arrival to the throne, and it was withheld by his mother for 70 years. Does that 70 number sound familiar to you? 70, 70 weeks are appointed for you. Daniel 9, 24, the 70 years that Israel would be in captivity in Babylon, the 70 years that the word would be in famine in Russia during the time of the Bolsheviks, right? These 70 years were 70 years of that the UK would be in the womb. But now Elizabeth is dead. She is no longer withholding. That which withheld is no longer gone, that he might be revealed in his time. The man of sin and the son of perdition might be revealed in his time. And I'm telling you, for him to come out and say two things, I was looking at this last week, it was just blowing my mind. First of all, he knows that he is a direct descendant of Vlad the Impaler. Now, why was Vlad the Impaler called Dracula? Because Dracul is what his father called himself. Dracul is the name for, is the, is the uh, 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 Romanian name for dragon. Yep. So who is Dracula? The son of the dragon. The son of the dragon. Okay. Now, check this out. Revelation 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his ten horns as ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Dracul, gave him his power, his seat, and his great authority. Right? Now, I can tell you, when you look at the coat of arms of Charles, when you look at the coat of arms of Charles, you're going to see the beast that is got the spots of a leopard, it's got that the it's got the feet of a bear, and it's got the mouth of a lion. That's what you see on one side. You know what's on the other side? A white horse. And you know what's tucked under the white horse? A dragon. Dracula. So he claims, and this, by, by the way, has been reviewed by the number one peerage uh, scientific journal in Britain. 
In other words, when the king says, this is my peerage, here's my genealogy, there's one group that is responsible for that peerage more than any other group in the world. And this group has confirmed that he is, in fact, the 43rd grandson of Muhammad, a direct descendant. Now, when you look at that, how many generations are in Matthew 1 when we talk about Mashiach? How many generations are there? 42. 14 from Abraham to David. 14 from David to, da to da David, uh, David to the taken away to Babylon. And 14 from the Babylonian people to the Mashiach. Now, all of a sudden, Charles shows up as 43, as the 43rd. Now, there's something going on. Today is the third. No, today is the second. There is something going on today, this very day, that is happening in Dubai at the Ecumenical Council in Dubai. The Pope is there. Charles is there. And other people are there. And by the 12th, we're going to have an announcement that is going to be a very curious announcement. Now, I don't know what that announcement is, but I suspect that there's a pandemic associated with it, a lockdown associated with it, central bank digital currency associated with it, digital identification associated with it, and the proclamation of one guy saying he is in the temple of Elohim and that he is Elohim. And what is the temple of Elohim? Is it going to be built in Jerusalem? No. There is an ecumenical temple that is being built in Dubai that is that features the three Abrahamic religions facing each other in a singular temple. So all I can tell you is that now, now something is very interesting about this. It says this, look. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue for 42 months. Will he continue for 42 months? And if that's the case, that's all of 2024, all of 2025, all of 2026, and half of 2027. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against Elohim to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the Kodeshim, to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, all kindreds, all tongues, and all nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, except those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb. They will not be given over to worship to him. Those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb are not going to be part of this kingdom. So it tells you categorically that there's a group of people who do not worship the beast. He's at war with them. There's a group of people he's going to make war with. He is at war with them, and they are not worshiping him. Even though it says everyone who dwells on the earth will worship him, then it goes on to say, except, except those who don't worship him, except those who have their name written in the book of life of the Lamb. Mm. Well, we have a very interesting, we have a very interesting future ahead of us, my friends. We have a hey, very, 
interesting future ahead of us. You do. Yeah. Okay. Dr. P, you you did a, a whole series or a, a video on the three um, religions uh, and that that temple that you just mentioned. Uh, do you remember the name of it? I, I we watched it, but I know yes. I'd like to go back and watch it again now. Who's who's speaking? Oh, Melissa. it's Mosa. It's Mosa. I'm right here. Oh, it's Melissa. Oh, hi, Melissa. Yeah, yeah, I did. I talked about these three religions, and of course, I mean, you know. Look, I'm not pretending at any time, and I hope no one takes me as a prophet, okay? Because I'm not intending to be a prophet. I'm just a scripture interpreter and somebody who looks at scripture and says, this is what I see as being read. And what I see is when we talk about these three religions, these three religions are, they're very, very close. They're all Abrahamic religions, right? They're all, they, everybody calls Abraham their father in these religions. And we see that, uh, in these three religions, there's eschatology that is a very much a crossover eschatology. There's certainly crossover eschatology between Islam and Christianity. But as Joel Richardson wrote, which is not his real name, but the book that he wrote, uh, which is that the Islamic Mahdi is the Christian Antichrist, he makes, and he's a quite a, a great Islamic scholar, he makes a very strong point. And his point is very, very clear that, in fact, the, the person who rises up as the Islamic Mahdi will, in fact, be the Antichrist or the anti-Mashiach that we see identified here primarily in this passage in Second Thessalonians. That he is someone who is going to proclaim himself to be Elohim, sitting in the temple of Elohim, and who will blaspheme the name of Elohim, and who walks around with names of blasphemy on his head, and who has this great authority of these seven heads and these ten crowns, and on and on and on. And this is going to be the case. He's going to be very widespread. You have to remember that KC3 controls 70 nations in the British Commonwealth. Let alone, let alone what we're talking about in the United Kingdom. And of course, what most people don't know is that he controls an entity that is one of the most wicked corporations in the whole world, which is called Serco, S-E-R-C-O. Look up S-E-R-C-O and see for yourself uh, this particular organization, the kinds of things they're up to. It used to be the British East Indies Company, which was one of the most wicked nation uh, companies in the world or the Hudson Bay uh, a, a company, another wicked company. These corporations were extremely wicked and brutal and genocidal and on and on and on. But Serco is not much different. So now we see something very curious. If, if Charles can, and he has established that he's a direct descendant of, of Muhammad, does he have the right to assert himself as 12th Imam, Mahdi, over the Shiite world. Does he have the right to do that? That makes him the commander-in-chief of Iran and Iraq and, and most of Syria, right? He becomes the commander-in-chief. I am the imam. And even though Sunni Islam may say, we're not prepared to accept you as imam, the, the prophecies of the Mahdi are going to come to play and are going to have such a generational force, such a power behind them, such an impetus that he could sweep into a position of authority that says this guy controls all of the Islamic world. And then the Pope, as the false prophet, who we have determined is not Catholic, he's not Catholic. This guy is going to turn around and say, worship the beast, worship the beast. 
for he has the power and the authority of the great dragon. Worship the beast. That puts 1.2 billion is, uh, Muslims in the same camp as 1.5 billion Catholics. Now you're talking about this guy's controlling 2.7, 2.8 billion people directly through religion. Not to mention the political machinations of saying, I control the five eyes. I control the English-speaking world. I control the European world. Therefore, this is what the rules are. These are what the course is, and you're going to follow. And this could be done by doing what? Showing the merger of church and state with Charles proclaiming himself to be a, is could Charles assume the position of the last Pope? Possible. The, Russian, the Russians aren't going to go along with this. <laughs> I, I know they aren't. I know this is, and this is why I'm saying it. When, you, when we look at this, we say, are, are the Russians, are the Russians those people who have their name written in the book of life? You know what, John Barr? I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I can't pass that judgment, right? Yah is the one who passes that judgment. I don't pass that judgment. But I know, that, but I know that, I know that the Russians are not taken kindly to any of this right now. No, they don't recognize the United States government. They don't recognize President Biden as the legitimate president. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's why they're not, they don't care what anybody says here, or EU or NATO. They don't care anymore about any opinion from the West. That's right, because the West cannot tell the truth. And as a consequence, that's it's right. Not, let's enter into a peace agreement with who? A liar? You know, <laughs> right. Talk the right. to the Native Americans about that. Yeah. Understand, understand that his he's also proven his lineage as being a descendant of the King David. That also he's a Jewish lineage and a, 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 a Islamic lineage, and and that's uh, that's pretty mind blowing. That's one of the reasons why he said he's the sovereign over Israel, and the sovereign over uh, uh, Islam. And so <laughs> we got it. The abomination of desolation has hit the deck. It's here. He he hasn't been revealed yet. But I think he's going to be revealed on December 12th. He's, I think yeah. December 12th is the day he's going to be revealed as the true son of David, the true, you know, the true Ben David, the true Mahdi, the true son of Muhammad, and the true Pope. I'm the defender of the faiths. He's going, and, and, and if he merges the if he merges the banking community in London with the Vatican. And he takes the position of, I'm the commander-in-chief over all of the armies of the West. Where is he? Who is like the beast and who can make war with the beast? Right? Where is he? And so we could be, we could very well be on the cusp right now of the revealing of the last Antichrist. Bale Rothschild is on the same page. Yeah. I mean, here we are. You know, thank you for adding that to the to the mix, David Barrow, because I think we're seeing just exactly this. And so now, when we look at this from a point of view of what do we do as a people group, right? We are the Kodashim. We are the people he is at war with. Who is Satan making war with? Those who have the testimony of Yahusha and who are keeping his commandments. They're not interested in making war with anybody else. They're interested in making war with us. And you know what I have to say to people who want to make more with me? Let them eat cake. 
That's what I say to them. <laughs> Let them eat cake. And because why not? Let's sit down and have some food and, and enjoy ourselves for a few minutes before we all get killed. Whatever. You know, the main thing is, is that we know that, you know, it's like, you know, it's like I put up this post on Telegram, right? Live update on Henry Kissinger, you know, and here's a skull burning in fire in hell, you know. And, uh, you know, I tell you, you cannot engage in the kinds of policies. You cannot be out, be out here preaching genocide and the slaughter of women and children and think that, you know, this is why these people are so desperate not to die. They'll do anything to not die. You know, eight liver transplants, transplants, four heart transplants like David Rockefeller had in order to avoid dying. Why don't you want to die, David? Something you afraid of? Yeah, there's something you're afraid of. You elected to live a wicked life on earth and to cast allegiance toward Satan. Well, guess what? The older you get, the more you're going to find out how real hell actually is. And, you know, if you ask Voltaire, because, you know, when you cross that threshold into death, you know, when you start having, uh, what do they call it? When you when you uh, start breathing, um, uh, there's a death breath. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, anyway, when you start breathing that death breath, you're-, you're Death rattle. Death rattle, that's it, Jim. When you get the death rattle, you've crossed that threshold. And when you've crossed that threshold, you're seeing what's beyond. And when Voltaire saw what was beyond, he started screaming- and he screamed for 16 hours, nonstop screaming because he could see what was coming. The same thing with Thomas Paine. He saw the same thing. And, you know, and this is why, you know, uh, for us, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I pray for Yah's mercy that Yah will see me in clothed in the linen of Yahusha. That's the way I wanted to see me, clothed in the linen of Yahusha. And, uh, you know, Amen. There it is, Raina. You know, so I think I have something. What's that, Randall? Um, yeah, I, I, I heard your talk the other day when you were talking about the uh, the Mahdi um, on uh, Radio Free, and uh, I I had watched several videos by uh, Tim Cohen. Yeah, yeah, he has a really lot of great information. But one of the things he he showed was that statue that. I'm not sure if it was the queen made or he made, but he made the statue of himself or the queen had it made for him. It's him standing over people with, with, with loincloth and wings. Really? Really? I think it matches the wings on the Ark of the Covenant. The altar. Yeah. And the Ark of yeah. the Covenant. Yeah. I think it matches the wings on the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's, and the, the triple helix DNA and Charles overseeing the Commonwealth Games in uh, Birmingham last year, where they presented the bull and human sacrifice. And he basically got in front of all of Britain and, and all of the Commonwealth world and said, it's now okay to worship a bull. It's now okay to sacrifice to Baali. It's now okay to do all these things. So he has... He has really entered into a blasphemy and he's entered. And, and now when, when these guys, this guy who recently did this video on December 12th, he shows the two crowns that Charles has already perfected. God of the earth, God of the universe. He's going to declare himself that. Now, my question is, is he going to declare himself that in Dubai or is he going to do it in Berlin on the Pergamum altar? 
Goodbye. That's where that's where Augustus Caesar declared himself to be God of the earth was on the Pergamum altar. But this is interesting that David Burroughs pointed out he claims to be a direct descendant of David. He claims to be. And, yeah. And I know that lineage. You know, when you talk about that, David, I've been very involved with that lineage. And that lineage, you know, when you talk about a direct descendant of David, that comes down through uh, the sister of Miriam, who was also the daughter of Joseph of Arimathea, who married the Welsh king, uh, 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 old King Coel. She married the, the old King Coel. And then that lineage passed down and they could, and we did a great deal of research on this on the Ark. And we found him linked directly to Robert the Bruce. And Robert the Bruce's lineage goes all the way back to Tia Tefi in Ireland, right? And the crossover between the house of, of the Irish high kings married to Tia Tefi, Tamar, the daughter of Zedekiah, and what would eventually become the Welsh king's transference of that lineage through Joseph of Arimathea and Anna, the sister of Miriam, marrying Coel, the king of the, of the Britons. And all of this lineage all passed through into Charles. So you have somebody who can say, I'm a direct descendant of David. I'm a direct descendant of Muhammad. I'm a direct descendant of Dracula, right? And he's claiming the right, and, and I'm the politically appointed head as the defender of the faiths, which is what he took in his anointing. So he is prepared to assert himself. And I think we're going to see it very, very soon. And look, when you look at the condition of the United States, we're completely rudderless. There's nobody at the rudder. You know, I don't know if you saw the last picture of Joe Biden, but Joe Biden has got both feet in the casket already. I mean, you know, he's sitting there, he's sitting there, he's one, he's two breaths away from being a corpse, sitting there at a public meeting going, <sighs> you know, I mean, you know, look, the difference between him and Baron von Frankenstein in the coffin is only that he's not holding the will in his hands. You know, I mean, that's that's the only difference, right? And so here we are. We, you know, we've got we've got a completely rudderless ship. Why do we have a rudderless ship? Because all of a sudden the rudder is going to appear. And who's the rudder going to be? KC3. KC3. Here it comes. Okay. So with that, guys, I'm going to wrap up the discussion. Is anything? Oh, let's go. Let's uh, let's go here to Mary and Rod. Mary. Yeah, I was just going to tell you, Doctor P. I put in the um, chat. I I was doing research on the idols of that time, and um, it came up with a a woman figure where they were tying Yah to um, Aseroth, their god, and that they were a pair. Yikes. And and I was I was going through the Bible. There are times where it's not necessarily a pole. It's actually a God. Yeah. And it's woman little figurine that they pressed out. Yeah. And there were a lot of them made. And I and what the other question I had for you is in 1905 um, to 1920, they took out those five um, dynasties. It was China. Germany, Russia, Austria-Hungary. Uh, Austria, yeah, and I was wondering if that's going to come back in. Yeah, that's a big question. A lot of people are saying, and the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. A lot of people that are saying that that is possibly going to be reinstated, that the reigns of kings are coming back. Well, that may well happen, because if you see a Charles, for instance, put an end to Zionism, 
it puts an end to Zionism because now there is no competing, there is no competing political class. I am God on earth. And what I say is the divine right of kings. And I have the divine right from every possible way you could have a divine right. In which case he could come back and appoint seven kings, right? Because it says that he has seven heads. And so this could very well happen that, that you're going to see kings reappointed and 10 crowns reappointed who reign with the Antichrist for, what does it say, one day or one hour? They reign with the Antichrist for one hour. But he is very likely to reappoint these kingdoms. Now, this would be very interesting if he comes into Russia and says, well, I'm now going to appoint Vladimir Putin as the czar of Russia. Now, I can tell you, you know, when you think about the life of the czars, and when you talk about this idea of having a reigning monarchy, you know, the difference when you, when you look at the United States where we have an elected tyrant, and that's what it is. We call it the president or an executive. But the truth is the United States is a tripartite form of government between a tyranny, a democracy, and an oligarchy. The oligarchy is in the judiciary. The, the legislative is the democracy. And the president is the tyrant. Now, the difference is, if you look about a constitutional monarchy, the tyrant's a king. And the difference is between it is that you don't elect the king. The king is there by, by birth. And then when he dies, you get whoever it is is next. And maybe they're good, maybe they're not. But in the same hand, look at the United States. We have the next election, and maybe he's good, and maybe he isn't. So right now, I'm unhappy with everybody for the last 150 years. But at any rate... It's the difference between a constitutional monarchy and a uh, the kind of government that we have, this tripartite form of government, okay? So uh, at any rate, when you're talking about the reinstatement of these empires, the Ottoman Empire, you know, imagine if, if, if Charles comes out and says, yeah, I'm now the king of Islam, and, and I'm also the king of Judaism, and I'm also the king of Christianity. I am the head of all the Abrahamic religions, and I'm also the head of the secular world. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of wondering. If you add him in, they're one-third, and you add him in, there's two-thirds. And one-third out. Yeah, one-third out. Well, anyway. The, uh, yeah, there's Charles has a problem he's overlooking because Muhammad was a son of Abraham who was never in bondage. Mm -hmm. He's... he's it's in the wrong camp. That's why the, the the name Abraham does not appear in the Bessarah. Sorry. Well, I was wondering if they give his power, they give their power over to him, because that There's was like tonight. God with the hat on it and the um the woman, all that on that little statue. It reminded me just like oh, there's the Roman Church. There it is. And the Roman church is defined in Jeremiah 45, right? They tell Jeremiah point blank, we're going to bake wafers to the queen of heaven. It's not bread. When you read it in the KJV, it's baked bread to the queen of heaven. When you read it in the Hebrew, it's wafers. We're going to make wafers to the, to the queen of heaven and pour out a drink offering to her. And Jeremiah says, hey, that's blasphemy. And they say, we're not going back to Yahweh. When we worship Yahweh, he brought all this stuff upon us, wrecked Jerusalem, put us in exile. We're not worshiping him. But when we worship the queen of heaven, we had food. 
Yeah, and that was um that was the Canaanite god El. Yeah, and when they said that, tied to El, and they were walking around worshiping her, and they were in they were in the temples. Well, going to a Catholic church, see what you see. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't. Believe it. We, went, we went into the main Catholic church in downtown Dublin, Ireland, and I told the group, I said, "We got to go in here." And Cheryl and Paul are like, eh, come on. I said, no, come on. We got one. I want you to see for yourself. So we walked into the church and here it is, man, this gigantic statue of Mary over the altar, about maybe 12 feet above the altar, ascending into heaven and two guys lifting up their arms, watching her ascend into heaven. Well, where's Jesus in all of this? Oh, he's in a black and white eight by 10 photo over there on the wall. Right. And it's not Jesus. It's Cesare Borgia, you know, in a black and white over there on the wall. There is absolutely no question that the Catholic Church worships Ishtaroth or Easter. There's no question. That is their God. It is, it had, they may pay lip service to Iesu, but their their God is is Mary. No question. You know what that that had on that statue, Dr. P is like the Dagon. Like, but it was the it's the right, fish. You know? It's, it's yeah. It's, there's absolutely no. I mean, that's the yeah, them out. <laughs> it's amazing when you see it, isn't it? It's amazing when you see it. Yeah, all of a sudden it's efficient. Christine, did you have something for us here? Yes, I have. Um, I have some things about the genealogy in Genesis thirty-six. Um, there's a name that comes up several times. It's Timna, the mother of Amalek. Yes. And it also in verse, that's in verse 12. In verse 32, it says the children of Lotan were Cori and Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timna. Now, I don't know if it's the same one, but I was thinking, oh, he got a, Amalek got a double dose of Canaanite DNA. Yep. So then I did a search on Timna, the very valuable um, tool of the uh, the phone app. Um, so it's it comes down to um, when Judah went to he went to shear sheep in Timna. So it's become an area, a region or a city. And um, that was where he found Tamar and and fathered the twins. And um, then we go to um, Judges and Joshua. And eventually, oh, in there, those two books, it talks about Timna being part of the Pelishtim. So that's where that area is. And then we come down to 1st Maccabees, which you're going to love. Uh, chapter 9, verse 50. Afterward, returned Bacchides to Yerushalayim and repaired the strong cities in Yahuda, the fort in Yeriko and Yemim and Beit Koran and Betel and Timnah, Farathoni and Tapauak. These did he strengthen with high walls, with gates and with bars. So that puts it real close to Jerusalem in the time of the Maccabees. 
So that's like a um, foot in the door for the usurper to be in that area. Yeah, that's that is very interesting that they that Timna would be this site of prostitution, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, Judah was going up there. You know, he was headed to Vegas. You know, he went up there to shear sheep. You know, and that's why he was looking for the harlot on the side of the road. And you know, so he comes up to Tamar, and Tamar says, "Look, I'll do anything for five hundred shekels." He says, "Anything?" She says, "Yeah." So he takes her back to his house and says, okay, you see that house? She says, yeah. He says, okay, paint it. That's a joke anyway. <laughs> but what, what happened with, between him and Tamar is that whole relationship of him seeking out a prostitute. You know, and he wants to blame Tamar for playing the harlot. He's the one that was willing to pay the prostitute, right? And it happened where? It, at, at Tinma. Yeah. And also Timna was the name of the woman that Samson wanted to marry. Really? Mm-hmm. You should try that search app. <laughs> I will. Thank, thanks for thanks for bringing it up, Christine. I'll, I'll take it back. So thanks for bringing this out, that the Maccabees would show this area, right? That we have this, we have this area and particularly its relationship to uh, the Pelish team. Another very interesting uh, link up that may be revealing about the Pelish team actually being uh, a disenchanted or shall we say disconnected group, disenfranchised group from Edom who, who basically were told, you guys are the sons of whores, leave. You know, you can't stay here. And that the Pelish team may have just been the sons of whores cast out of the uh, out of this social order of Edom. It's very possible that that's what we're talking about. That may give us some clue as to who the Pelish team are. Okay, Angelo, go ahead there, brother. What do you got? Yeah, this goes back way back when you were asking the question, why possibly was in such detail all these kings? And I just I had a thought that I'd like to tie in with Kizion to, to make a conclusion of it. Um, this is out of... Um, Bereshit 17, 4 through 6. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Avram, but your name shall be called Avraham. For a father of many nations I have made you, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. Um, my comment on this is overall, when we study Yah's in control of everything, no matter what it is completely. And to such a degree, I think so much credit. Uh, I don't mean that's meant to be a wrong word. An awful lot of emphasis gets put on the enemy. Well, the enemy is just fulfilling the will of Yah. Amen. We, you know, when we look at uh, Kizion, uh, for instance, like uh, chapter I 17. Let me make sure I got it right. Yeah. Um, in describing what he's going to do in verse 13 it says these have one mind and they shall give their power and strength unto the beast okay so we know that that's going to take place and we'll see that what the reality that will be it distinctly says these will shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is Yahweh adonai king of kings and they are with him called and chosen and faithful now, 
the waters being described as multitudes, nations, and tongues. And then it speaks about these ten horns which you saw upon the beast will hate the whore, and shall make her desolate, naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Here's the key in verse 17. For Elohim has put into their, in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of Elohim shall be fulfilled. So whether this COP28 meeting, which has got more things getting ready to have teeth, it's been spoken of for a long time, it's been hinted at for certainly a decade, you see the reality of it coming in in this meeting through these next coming days. Uh, we're seeing uh, Yah's will being filled in detail because all of these things, just like with Pharaoh, he knew his heart, and when he sent him there, he said that he would continue to be getting more stubborn and stubborn, and finally he gave him the fulfillment of his heart. He said even harm did that much more. We're going to see a major play all across the entire earth. So yeah. for us studying this, the promise that we see back in uh, Bereshit is that Abraham is a representation, if you will, a reset showing that the father's total control, and I have the warfare, this warfare between two seeds, I have said it from the beginning, it is fulfilled, and all these things in between. The statement of those kings is, well, he said out of, out of his loins, many nations, many kings would come. So that was just one comment. But the other one was just to wrap it up in the sense of how much comfort we take from this. Because when we see these things happening, it says, raise your heads erect. We're not in favor. Whatever takes place, no matter what it means, if it means our sacrifice of our life, so be it. We gain the kingdom. And so I just wanted to share that and, and uh, just tying that home in Kizion, that he's in total control. And they and even Asatan, obviously, fulfilling whatever Yah's will is, uses the darkness. So anyway, I just want to share that. Amen. Hallelujah, Angela. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. We kind of reached that same conclusion last night. Ultimately, it's all Yah's plan. And don't stand in front of it. Don't stand in front of it. Don't try to change it. Don't try to, you know, don't try to make something different out of it. It's Yah's plan. Let Yah, let Yah be what he will be. Okay, so I'm going to go to May 98, only on the condition that you open up your camera and we can see who you are. Okay, here I come. One moment here. Might come out blurry because I have my, uh, I had my tape on there. Just let me see here. Let me know if you guys can see me. No, we, it's still blessed. Um, Sorry, but May 98, but we... But we yeah, okay, here, let me do this. Let me try this. Hold up, let me see. Okay, now you got now you got to unmute. Okay, can you see me a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. How are you doing? Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Um, yes, I had a quick question. I have three quick questions, Doctor P. I don't know if you could possibly answer it or not, because um, the um, two quick questions. The last one I could let you elaborate on a little bit. Uh, First question is, um, when I was reading in the Sefer, you know, it always talks about a wife 
uh, being a, it's, it's describes it as a woman. And I was wondering, why does it say woman instead of wife, like in in the Sefer? And the reason why is because the word there is Isha. And so there really is no word for wife in Hebrew. You can kind of construe it as wife, which most commentators have. But really, there is no word for wife. It is woman. And okay. Adam took Hua to be his woman. And Yitzhak to Rivka, took Rivka to be his woman. And in some cases, uh, and see, because so wife is a an understanding we have in the modern world that usually means a licensed relationship that the king or the state is approved of in writing that allows you to get married. And that wasn't the case back then at all. And you have different relationships that are really kind of curious, like the marriage between Yitzhak and Rivka or Isaac and Rebecca, I think is a very good model. You have a very strong courtship. You have the agreement of the parties up front. You have a dowry being given. You have all of these things that are put in place. You have the approval of the families. All of this stuff is there. That gives you a very strong model. But there's no hoopa and walking around seven times and breaking a glass with your foot or any of the rest of that stuff. None of that is described anywhere in scripture. That's not described at all by anybody at any time ever, whether David was marrying uh, Michal or whether you were talking about Abraham taking Sarah or none of that is ever described. All of that stuff is latter rabbinical stuff. And so we went with, and even the word for wife in Greek is the same thing. It means woman before it means wife. It's construed as wife, but really the word is woman. Okay. And then the second question is, because I remember from a few, maybe months ago, uh, it was over the summer, you were talking about the crucifixion device used for the Messiah, Yahusha, and you said that we couldn't look it up. I for, I remember you mentioned the name. I forgot it. I don't know if you don't. I'll, I'll tell you what that is. Sure. Yeah. It is, it's called the Pendiculum Storos. How do you spell that? P-E-N-D-I. C-U-L-U-M, pendiculum storos. Now, the reason why the most commentators believe that the pendiculum storos was what was used is because contemporaneous with the crucifixion of Mashiach, you had over 100,000 people crucified on the Appian Way outside of Rome. And they were all crucified on the pendiculum storos. They weren't nailed to the stake like the JWs try to tell you, well, it was just a sterosa stake. Well, actually, there's a better word for stake in the Greek language than steros. Steros is a redacted term. Most people don't want to accept it, but the New Testament has been mercilessly redacted by people with taking a, a scalpel out and cutting word after word after word after word out, particularly names, deleting names so you don't know who people are. And But they took a lot of the names out, and they also took out the pendiculum storos. And so the methodology of the Romans was they would have a stake in the ground. So the stake is buried. And this is why they would refer to it just as the storos. Because, you know, you go out there, you dig a hole, you put the stake up, the stake's there. Now when you want to kill somebody on it, you take the pendiculum, which is the crossbeam. And they would take them, and this is what Mashiach carried was the cross beam. He didn't carry the whole of the cross. He carried the cross beam, the pendiculum. He carried the pendiculum, and they, they may have already had his hands nailed to it. I don't know. But he's carrying the pendiculum, and when then when he gets to the stake, they just lift the pendiculum up, and they put it on top of the stake, 
and they nail whatever is left to the stake. And in this case, they only, they, you know, let's spare the nails. We don't have to nail this out of the other thing. We, we can use one nail and just put his feet together and nail his feet right there with one nail. We killed a, a, two birds with one stone, so to speak. And so this is why, and then the reason you see a cross kind of appear, and this is very obvious in the Russian church, because they have this little additional line above the cross, which is where they put the name. Mm -hmm. So they put the name up there. Then you have the, then you have the cross and then, the Russian cross also shows the footstep upon where his feet were. And so that's a particular kind of cross. But the uh, this it's called the pendiculum storos. So it's more like a it, it's more shaped like a T, kind of like a like a capital T type. That's of. exactly right. OK. All right. And then the last question, because um, you mentioned earlier about the waters and the Mai'i. Which is kind of interesting because you read my name tag up top here. It says May, right? So I was just trying to figure out what that meant in the Paleo Hebrew because I, I know it means waters, but that E at the end for me, you know, I was just trying to figure out what what could that, you yeah, know, what that means is is it the Mem is actually a signal of water or even the the womb, okay? And so when you talk about Mayim, let me show you this. I'll put it in the whiteboard here. Okay, let me clear this just one second. So when you talk about uh, Mayim, you're talking about this word here, okay? Mayim. So this is Mem Yod Mem. And so what you see here is something very interesting because this is the open womb. The open womb. And this is the closed womb. So what you can kind of see in Mayim is that the closed womb, this is the hand of Yah. The closed womb, by the hand of Yah, becomes open. Now, in this, you can also see creation because the waters below or the waters above are divided from the waters below by the hand of Yah. Now, when you look at when you look at the name for uh, the mother, it's Miriam. So we added a resh in here. So here, the closed womb, that is the virgin womb, by the hand of Yah, places the head in the open womb. Miriam. And so this would this is basically the meaning of of this is the meaning of Mayim, water, Mayim. The water above, by the hand of Yah, is divided from the water below. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, and so, so basically, so with my name, that's what that basically, if you translate it right, because it's like that e, because I'm looking at that e at the end, because I know usually a lot of people's names are May or May, um, 
uh, maize, you know, something to that effect. But so, so may in the Hebrew would be uh, my water, my water, my water. Okay. Yeah. It's so, so the yod, the yod is a possessive at the end. Does that help? Wow. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Welcome. Welcome to our Shabbat group. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. Yes. Well, let's pray, guys. We're going to wrap up the Shabbat. Thank you guys for such a blessed day. It was so wonderful to hear from all of you and to see all of you. So I'm greatly blessed by our Shabbat. I hope you guys were as well. Mm -hmm. And I hope we had a meaningful discussion. I want to thank all the brothers and sisters who were here today. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, Blessed are you, Yahweh, our Elohim, the Elohai of Yasharel, our Father forever and ever. We praise you, Yah, and give thanks for your Shabbat today, that you have given us this time together, that we have been a blessing to you and that you have been a blessing to us. May your mercy cover us now, Father. Look on your people now as we cry out to you, our Elohim, and say, find us in the book of life, O Yah. Find our names placed there. Call to us as you see fit, Father. Cover us with your wings and give us the measure of your voice in the things that we do and see. May we be a blessing unto you and a light unto the kingdom of Yahusha. In the name of Yahusha, we lift these prayers to you today, saying hallelujah and amen, amen. Okay, guys, thank you so much. And we will say, oh, Deborah, did you want to say something before we go? Yeah, I just got a message that Sherry may have had a blackout. Oh, really? Yeah, mm -hmm. I just it just came across my screen a little while ago. Okay, well, let's pray for Sherry real quickly, and let's lift up the health, actually, of all the people in our fellowship, okay? Yes, thank but, you. Father, we want to lift up uh, Sherry to you now, Father, that you would take care of her and restore her to complete health. And we want to pray for all the brothers and sisters here, Father, that may be ailing and have any physical ailments at all, whether they have problems with their eyes or whether they have problems with their ears or with their joints and their bones and the arthritis and all these things that come in that the lungs that may be infected would be miraculously healed, that cancer would go away miraculously, Father, that you would just heal and cure as you can, Father. You are the great physician. Lift up your hand upon us, Father, with mercy and tenderness to bring healing to us and restore us to our health. We lift up our petitions to you. And Father, also, while we're lifting our petitions to you on behalf of people, I also want to lift up, uh, I want to lift up uh, Scott Bennett, who is now traveling home from Russia, Father, that you would bless his trip home and would bless his reentry uh, into the States. We want to also lift up our friend Brooke, who needs to have the Sabbath given to her, Father. We pray that you would bless her with the Shabbat. And those who do not have the Sabbath and who are seeking it, pray for all of those today, Father, that you would bestow them with the Shabbat and the day of rest. We praise you now in all things, Father, knowing that your will is perfect on this earth. And may we be attended to it in the name of Yahusha. Amen. 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 Okay. Stephen. Yes. Sorry. Um, Robert Larkin, he's a very royal, loyal member of Sefer here. He went into a brain bleed yesterday after having pneumonia for uh, five days. So his wife had called earlier so that you would all pray and that you would pray that he lives. Oh, it's quite mm -hmm. grave, uh, the hours that are happening now. So... Just you know, for everyone to pray and Stephen for you to pray, she asked as well. 
Where is where is uh, Robert? Uh, do you know what? I can't remember. Wherever Leah and James are based, he's in the same area. So I think that's Missouri. I hope I'm correct um, over here. But uh, he's been with you for years. And Angie asked to pray. Yeah, let's pray for him. Uh, Heavenly Thank Father, lift Robert Larkin to you now with particularity, Father, that you would look on him now and see him and find him. Uh, look on him <laughs> and in his distress, Father, that you would uh, bless him and keep him and that you would restore his health and that you would take away these medical issues and bring him back to consciousness and a complete revival, Father, and bless his family. We pray, Father, that you would, would do these things and that this pneumonia thing would absolutely be no part of your kingdom whatsoever, Father, that you would rebuke pneumonia away from the Kodashim entirely, that it would not be present. Father, we, we lift him to you now with great expectation, Father, that your hand will be upon him with healing. We lift it in the name of Yahusha again. Amen. 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 Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Thank anybody? you. Amen. That was a really good session. Thank you, Dr. Pigeon. Oh, thank you, Ariel. Thank you, sister. Blessings to you, too. And thank you. Yes, Dr. thank Pigeon. you. Okay. Wow. okay, guys. All right. Well, let's say Shabbat Shalom. Then we will see you guys thank later. You, Dr. Yeah. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to hear from my brother Randall, Dr. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.